I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is Slice by Slice, a podcast where we dissect and discuss horror films by categories and subgenres, such as killer cars, aliens, franchises, and directors' bodies of work. And of course, we can't dissect and discuss these films in the detail we do without spoilers. It might have taken 60 episodes, but we're finally going to cover Master of Horror, John Carpenter. This one's all you. <laughs> Been wanting to this one a while. We're recording part one of this three-part series on May the 16th, 2021. This first one's probably going to be a long one. We have a good bit to cover. <laughs> oh, it never gets old. The guy's been around for a while. Hey, we've been doing very well with like <laughs> two hour episodes until the last one. But that was three movies, man. I know. I know. That was that was a good, good uh, reduction compared to uh, three movie parts of the past. <laughs> We'll try to blow through the housekeeping kind of quick here because we got a lot to cover, but a little bit of horror news. I saw that Showtime is making a Let the Right One In TV series. So I like the original version of the movie. The American remake was pretty good. Let's see how the TV show goes. Yep. Wait and see. I saw that there's a movie called Time Cut coming out. It's produced by Christopher Landon. You know, he does like Freaky and Happy Death Day to You and whatnot. And they said it's Back to the Future meets Scream. So I want to see that. Okay. I'm going to have to read more on this. (laughs) (laughs) There's not a lot out. I don't even think they've started making it yet, but Uh, I'm very interested in it. Sorry. I'm just going to blow through these in search of darkness. Part three is being made. Damn it. I still got to watch two. If I ever get internet (laughs) again, Elon pretty good. You're going to blame Elon for this. He was busy, man. He was hosting Saturday night live. Well, you know what? There's people South of me that are, that I've been talking to that have theirs that are bitching about how they've only got 300 meg connections. <laughs> <laughs> you have zero mag right now. Exactly. And when I do have, I have three, I could be running at 10% of what they're bitching at. And I'd be a hundred percent higher than what, well, 10, 10 times higher than what I have right now. Anyways, that's my, my AT&T sucks rant for this episode. A24, which for the most part, I seem to like their movies. It's making a slasher movie. Ah, it's called Bodies, 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 and it's got Lee Pace in it, and that's all I need to know is I love that guy. Who the hell is that? Oh, you'd know him if you saw him. It's story of my life. <laughs> Pushing Daisies is what he was originally famous for. He's the star of that show. I haven't seen an episode of that. <laughs> halt and Catch Fire. Nope. Guardians of the Galaxy. I saw that twice. He's the bad guy. Oh, okay, okay, okay. This bit of news I received from Josh's wife, but sci-fi is making a horror remake of Bring It On that's supposed to come out <laughs> on Halloween next year. I don't know the fuck it's going to work, but I'm excited. Um, I'm down. It just if it if it's in the vein of of how I feel in the cheerleading scenes in Not Another Teen Movie, and that is a horror comedy. I'm there, dude. <laughs> I just wish it wasn't sci-fi making it. Like that's the scary part, right? Yeah, they haven't done anything worth watching since Big Ass Spider. I haven't watched it, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> it's got a big ass spider in it. I'm not watching it. <laughs> Fucking hate spiders. <laughs> Robert Eggers' movie, The Northman, has a 2022 release date. I was kind of hoping it was coming out this year, so I'm kind of sad. Yeah, at least it's coming out. That's this Viking movie, and the cast is phenomenal on that one. Yeah, so yeah. I don't know how horror that one's going to be, but. I like Vikings too, so it just works out. I was going to say, if it's hyper-violent, I'm still there. 
that's all I had for news because it's been a long three weeks and it's like nothing crazy was announced. So, I mean, we got Army of the Dead coming out on Netflix in like a week, right? So that'll be kind of neat. Yeah. As far as updates and corrections go, Elijah Wood did not direct Come to Daddy. It was directed by Ant Timpson and written by Toby Harvard. So he was just in it, but I think it was his horror company that made the movie. So, Oh, okay, okay. I didn't verify that final piece, but I believe I said he directed it. It was probably when we were talking about the Chainsaw Awards, but it's been three weeks, guys. Forgive me. <laughs> and McKenna Grace, I said something about her looking just like Sabrina in Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Yeah. Apparently, I'm not the only one that thinks that because she played young Sabrina on all the flashback scenes of the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. <laughs> Dad makes it all make sense. <laughs> so me remembering her as Sabrina Spellman was a fact. Yeah, yeah. It was factually accurate. This one wasn't so much an update or a correction, but while I was editing the episode, it bothered me how quickly I would say Daniela and it would sound like Danielle. Totally in one ear and out the other for me, man. I didn't even pick up on it. <laughs> well, I would sit there and I'm like, oh my God, I said her name wrong again. And I'd go back and I'd just isolate it and replay it. And I'm like, no, I'm saying Daniela. I just talk like an idiot. <laughs> but you know, that's that. Shit happens, man. Exactly. As far as what we watched, I don't know. You would think I would have watched a bunch of shit in three weeks, but really I just watched a whole bunch of old John Carpenter movies, right? With <laughs> what little time I had. And in the free time, my wife and I are still watching the Nevers. The final episode of this like half of the show or season comes out tonight. Kind of excited. Apparently Joss Whedon's a big asshole and people don't like to work with him, but that motherfucker can still make a show because it looked like he directed <laughs> all of them so far and wrote them and created it. But I don't know. It's a fun show for anybody who hasn't checked it out. I finished creep show season two. I can't remember if that was before or after the last episode, it kind of blurred together, but the last episode wasn't that bad. It was a, it was one story for the last episode instead of yeah. being two. So it was a little different. Um, there was definitely some more standout ones than others to me in that season though. It's still a fun season. I watched In Search of Darkness, part two. So, haha, I'm ahead of you on that. Four and a half hours ahead of me. <laughs> That's what I was about to say. I was like, man, I didn't have much time to watch something. Well, I did watch a four and a half hour long documentary. So, <laughs> I started Jupiter's Legacy on HBO. It's like a superhero show that's partly in the depression and then partly like in modern times, like a fake modern times and the cast playing the people and the kind of characters they're playing. You wouldn't expect. And it's really dark. It's not like a happy superhero thing. And I kind of want to finish watching that one, but, but I really got to like fucking find some time to hammer through that, <laughs> which is going to be hard to do because the final season of Castlevania came out on Netflix and I'm going to try to marathon that this week. Ah, okay. What'd you watch bud? I don't know if you had watched this one yet. Uh, the boys from County hell. Yes, I did watch that. I forgot to put it on the list. I need to go back and watch the last 10 minutes. I fell asleep on the couch watching it. Okay. Not because it was boring. I started it the same night. I watched. like, I watched in search of darkness part two. And like, I was just drinking beer through it. And I'm like, Hey, I'm not tired. And it's three o'clock in the morning. Let's start a movie. Oh, and I'm no, getting no. old, <laughs> but I made it almost all the way to the end. I know I said it looked like a, Irish version of Shaun of the Dead. It's not quite as out there like that. Like it's not as funny, but it was yeah. pretty good what I saw so far. Yeah, it wasn't bad. It just didn't suck me in. Anybody listen, uh, do not watch Block Island Sound. Okay. <laughs> it's now take you're taking this from me, so you know what kind of shit I'm into. I just didn't think it was that good. The drone, which is a totally a ripoff of child's play, where this murderer's okay. soul gets sucked into a drone. Ooh. And he goes chasing after his ex. Well, it was made by the same people that made Zombievers. So I knew what caliber of movie I was going into. Gotcha. It just wasn't funny enough. Creep show, of course. We talked about that. Finally watched Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. 
Okay. Did you like it? I loved it. I had no okay. clue the direction he went with it. I'm just like, right. yeah, yeah, we're going to eventually get to this, blah, blah. And I was sitting there thinking, watch the movie, like, it'd be so cool if it was just a complete retelling of like something like totally different and they get their comeuppance. And then that's exactly what happens. And I was so fucking happy. Yeah, it was basically like Inglorious Bastards. He like yeah. did a fictionalized version of history, right? Yeah, and it was an hour and a half too long. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. Like Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio were fucking fantastic all the way through that movie. Yes. And him in like the fucking Komodo robe or whatever with the blender full of <laughs> margarita, <laughs> margarita yelling at him because they're supposed to go in Sharon Tate's house and kill her, but he pissed them off so bad they're just going to go fucking kill him anyways. And then... Fucking flamethrower. I mean, come the fuck yes. on, right? No, they're great in that movie. And then since we didn't have internet, we binge watched the only season you could get on DVD of Suburgatory being the first season, which I never watched. And we watched it. And now I'm pissed off because I need to see seasons two and three because I thought it was funny <laughs> as shit. Is that the Jane Levy show? Yes. Okay. Okay. Margie loved that show. So I saw random ones. I remember... Cause Alan Tudyk's on it. Right. And he's like the neighbor. Yes. And he's a dentist or something. And he like hosts the prom and he has like pomegranate juice punch or something. Cause it died. Yes, everybody's teeth everybody's reds. Teeth. Like, yes. Come see him. <laughs> like you just had really funny gags like that in there. And uh, yeah, it was, it was fun. What I did see of that. So uh, yeah, that's it for me. Well, of course I watched some John Carpenter movies. I fucking hope so. <laughs> Guys, we hope this is going to be like a really fun three-part series. John Carpenter has made a lot of movies all over the spectrum, right? And we've already covered Halloween. We've already done vampires. And we wanted to try to grab movies that work together, right, and put them together. And I wanted to cover too many damn movies. So we got it down to six movies. (laughs) It's going to be a blast. On this first episode, we're going to cover Christine and The Thing. But before we dive into the movies, let's get into the man's backstory. Let's go. All right. So John Howard Carpenter, born January 16th of 1948 in Carthage, New York. And in 53, his family moved to Bowling Green, Kentucky, which I had heard he was from Kentucky. So I guess that's why. And his father was the head of the music department at Western Kentucky University. This is where John ended up attending college until he transferred to USC School of Cinema in L.A. in 1968, where he went for a year or so until he dropped out to make his first feature film. seems like that worked out for him. Yeah, him and Kevin Smith. (laughs) As far as influences go, he obviously got into music because of his dad, and he had a love for film really early on. So he wanted to kind of combine the two, and sometimes I honestly feel like John Carpenter made movies just so he could make soundtracks (laughs) it just worked out for all of us but he loved westerns growing up especially those made by howard hawks and john ford and growing up he was also a fan of low budget horror movies like the thing from another world which was made by howard hawks right so he didn't just do westerns apparently yep and like so many directors that we've talked about on this show he started making short films on eight millimeter before he was even in high school no damn But in 1969 at USC Cinema, Carpenter wrote and directed an eight-minute short film called Captain Voyeur. The film used poster boards and Sharpie as the title cards and the credits, and the whole movie is very silly and not serious by any means. You can watch it on YouTube, but it had elements that would later appear in Halloween and some of his other movies. And the film was actually discovered in the USC Cinema Archives in 2011, and that's all got released publicly to watch, but it probably hadn't been seen since 69 before that. 
Oh, wow. In 1970, he was the editor, composer, and co-writer on the film The Resurrection of Bronco Billy. And this film won an Academy Award for Best Short Film and also had Nick Castle as the co-writer and cinematographer. Uh Uh-huh. Who ended up later playing The Shape. And, of course, we know he made Last Starfighter and Major Pain and things like that down the road. (laughs) It's a weird jump there. I know. Last Starfighter sounds fine when you're talking about the horror genre, but as soon as you go to Major Pain, it's like, the one where he breaks (laughs) dude's fingers? (laughs) Yeah, but don't forget about the boogeyman in the closet that's not too happy anymore. (laughs) Oh, yeah. In 1974, John directed his first major film, Dark Star, which was a sci-fi comedy that he started on at USC. He co-wrote it with Dan O'Bannon, who later wrote Alien, right? That's pretty impressive. And Carpenter also did the score and the editing on this film. O'Bannon did the special effects, which George Lucas saw and then hired him to work on Star Wars doing special effects. That's why that name sounds familiar. Yeah, they they did some impressive work on that one. It kind of set them both up. This film started to give Carpenter notoriety of being able to make really good low-budget movies. In 1976, Carpenter wrote, directed, and scored Assault on Precinct 13, which was a low-budget thriller and an homage to Howard Hawk films. And the film is basically Rio Bravo reimagined in an urban setting. And Carpenter also edited the film under the pseudonym John T. Chance, which was John Wayne's character in Rio Bravo. So it was just like all a throwback, right? Sounds like. And Carpenter said that this was his first real film because he had to work on a schedule. Normally he didn't have a schedule he had to keep. <laughs> and this is also where he met and worked with Deborah Hill for the first time. And this film is regarded as one of the best exploitation films of the 70s. In 78, John had a really busy year because he first made Someone's Watching Me, which was a horror thriller about a woman being stalked. And this is where he met his soon-to-be wife, Adrian Barbeau, which I don't think I knew he was ever married to, especially when we covered Swamp Thing. Maybe we brought it up then. I don't know. I don't remember. The film also features Charles Cyphers, who would later appear in Halloween as Sheriff Brackett, Andy's in the Fog. And this is the same year that he directed, scored, and co-wrote Halloween, which is arguably the film he is most famous for. I don't think we need to go into this one again because we've covered it in quite detail, but everyone knows it was a very successful film. Was it? Yep. <laughs> I also want to point out that he wrote a film called The Eyes of Laura Mars, which was his first major film the same year as well, right? Like it was a big budget movie. Oh, okay had a very bizarre plot. I don't remember specifically what it was, but I think it was an eye transplant and the eye was from something bad. I don't remember. That sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah. So he wrote, directed, and scored a couple of movies and then wrote another one. So that's a busy year. In 79, he collaborated with Kurt Russell for the first time on the made-for-TV movie Elvis, where Kurt Russell played Elvis Presley, which I saw that a long time ago when I was a kid, and I don't remember really well, but it's always weird thinking of Kurt Russell as Elvis Presley. Hey, it works. <laughs> because Kurt Russell's a goddamn national treasure and he should be in everything. (laughs) In 1980, Carpenter teamed up with Deborah Hill again to make The Fog. I'll go further into this film on another episode in the series. However, I do want to mention that after viewing a rough cut of The Fog, Carpenter wasn't satisfied with the film and he said that he felt like he failed as a creator for the first time in his career. And he then went back and did some reshoots and added scenes and he said it brought it up to his standards and this movie ended up being a commercial success. I did not know that was a production hell movie. Yeah. And when I cover the movie, I'll go into what he added, but it really was the entire atmosphere of the movie. In 1981, Carpenter followed up the success of The Fog with Escape from New York, a sci-fi action film which brought back many actors that he had worked regularly with, right? And this film was both a commercial success and critically acclaimed. And once again, we'll go further into this one in the series. 
1982, which was a great year. That's when I was born. It's when Josh was born. Carpenter directed and scored The Thing, which is a horror sci-fi classic and a marvel of practical effects. But this film was a flop before it became a cult classic. Fucking E.T., man. Am I right? <laughs> That's the best way to sum that up. <laughs> but Josh will cover this film later on the episode, and we'll go into more detail. You're going to hear me say that a lot on this next couple minutes. <laughs> like right now. In 1983, Carpenter directed and scored the Stephen King adaptation of Christine. And John Carpenter says that he simply took the job because nobody was calling him after the thing flopped. And he didn't think it was going to turn out very good, but he needed to make some money. And it turned out better than he could have imagined, he said. Holy shit. And this movie was a success commercially and with critics. And only bring that up because his movies kind of go up and down on the spectrum sometimes. Yeah. In 1984, he directed Starman, which was produced by Michael Douglas and starring Jeff Bridges. And this film was a romantic comedy that received Oscar and Golden Globes nominations. And doing Starman got John Carpenter some attention outside of the horror genre. And he was asked to direct Santa Claus, the movie, the one with John Lithgow and Dudley Moore. I love that movie. Yeah. I used to watch that one a lot as a kid. And John was very interested in doing something different, but he wanted to take 24 hours to think on it. And he returned the next day with a list of requirements. He wanted 100% creative control. He wanted the option to become the scriptwriter and the composer. He wanted full editing control. He wanted Brian Dennehy of Rambo fame to play Santa Claus. And he wanted a $5 million sign-on fee. They passed. I was just going to say, that's why he didn't do that movie. <laughs> I could see Brian Dennehy as Santa Claus, though. Totally. I could, too. Carpenter's next flick was also a box office bomb, and that was the action comedy Big Trouble in Little China, which I love, and I will most definitely be covering this one later in the series. <laughs> and this film came out in 1986, and it had a budget of $25 million, which was a huge budget back then, and it only made $11 million. Oh, damn. Those numbers may be worse than the thing. <laughs> At this point, this is pretty much the end of John Carpenter's large commercial successes, and we're only in 86. <laughs> the movies keep on coming though, guys. <laughs> There's some good ones in here. John Carpenter decided to go back to making indie films after, you know, not doing well with the big budget movie, which I don't know. It's just such a great movie. I don't know how it didn't do well. I want to know what came out around it. Yeah. He made 1987's Prince of Darkness, which was the second part of his apocalypse trilogy. The trilogy being the thing Prince of Darkness and in the mouth of madness. But after that he made, they live in 1988 and these films have a huge cult following now, but they did not at the time. <laughs> and around this time, Carpenter was offered to do the exorcist three, but he and the writer could not agree on the ending and it didn't work out. Huh? John says they worked together great on everything, but since they couldn't agree on how the end of the movie, he just had to bow out. Right. And the writer ended up directing the film. In the 90s, John Carpenter had a few more critical failures. He made Memoirs of an Invisible Man in 92 with Chevy Chase, which I saw that movie. I remember it kind of being your standard Chevy Chase fair. Had no clue John Carpenter made it, though. Yeah, I didn't know either. Body Bags in 93, which I believe was an anthology movie, and I remember renting it in the golden age of film at Blockbuster when I was a kid. But yep. I don't remember all the segments in it. In 1994, he teamed up with Hooper and made In the Mouth of Madness, which was the third part of the Apocalypse trilogy. And we're saving that one for a Lovecraft episode. Yeah. In 95, he made Village of the Damned, which some people like that movie. I never really got into that one. It felt more like a drama thriller to me, right? That's all right. In 96, 
He made a sequel for Escape from New York and made Escape from L.A., which he shouldn't have. He brought himself back directing and Kurt Russell in the starring role and just couldn't do it again. That's the one with the surfing scene, right? Yes, and I honestly can't remember anything else in the movie besides the surfing scene, and I feel like a lot of people feel that way. It just kind of like overpowers <laughs> the movie, and they just couldn't do it again. I don't know. It was um, it was lightning in a bottle, right, making the first one. Exactly. And around out the 90s, in 98, he made John Carpenter's Vampires, which we covered on one of our vampire episodes before, and we liked that movie, and that's probably as close to making a Western as he got in his major film career. Yep. Out of all those movies in the 90s, though, In the Mouth of Madness is the only one that ended up being a cult favorite. Yeah. I've never met anyone that didn't like vampires that saw it, but it's hard to find people that saw it, I think, was the problem. Yeah. It had James Woods in it, though, man. Of course it was going to be good. (laughs) But also in 1998, John Carpenter was approached to do Halloween H2O. And I believe it was Jamie Lee Curtis, we said, is who brought it to John and was like, please do this, right? Yeah. But Mustafa Akkad refused to pay his starting fee of $10 million, and he bowed out. And you can find all sorts of information about that on the internet or on the Halloween franchise series. (laughs) Yep. During this time, he did some TV and video game soundtracks. So he was just doing scores and soundtracks at that point. And then in 2001, he made Ghost of Mars, which I believe I've never seen. I remember starting it once and getting distracted cleaning or something and never going back to watch it. So I can't really that movie's talk fucking about terrible. That Is it okay? <laughs> I can't. The wife likes it, but I, oh <laughs> man, that movie's bad. I don't think the movie was very well received. And in 2005, Assault on Precinct 13 and The Fog were remade, and John Carpenter had a producer credit on The Fog, but he admitted that he basically showed up on set and said hello and got paid and left, and that was the extent of his duties. That is the career everyone aims for. (laughs) This was the same year that Psychopath, the video game, was announced, and it was going to be made in collaboration with John Carpenter, and... This idea was supposed to be a video game with multiple media tie-ins, including a film, which John Carpenter would direct, and he was also to direct all of the video game's cutscenes, and he was responsible for character design. Unfortunately, this game quickly became vaporware, and nothing was mentioned of it again, but it seemed very interesting. And John's always been in a video game, so. Oh, yeah. He also directed an episode of Masters of Horror on Showtime that same year. So he wrapped up the 90s. A little busy, but some projects didn't finish. In 2007, Halloween was remade by Rob Zombie, which John Carpenter had nothing to do with. And then in 2010, he directed The Ward. And this was the end of his film career so far, other than being the executive producer, co-composer, and creative consultant on the new Halloween trilogy, which I'm glad he's a part of. Yep. This was actually his first involvement with the franchise since Season of the Witch. So damn. (laughs) And speaking of his remakes, on one of the interviews I saw, which a fantastic one is Robert Rodriguez interviewing him on his show, The Directors, I think it's called, on the El Rey Network, but the interview's on YouTube. It was either on that interview or, or another one of the big ones, but somebody asked him how did he feel about his films being remade and rebooted, and he says he loves it. He loves the idea of it because he simply holds out the palm of his hand and someone places a check in it, <laughs> and he doesn't have to do anything for it, and it's the easiest money. Because John Carpenter is pretty no bullshit straightforward in any interview I've ever seen him in while oh, yeah. he's chain smoking cigarettes. And and he'll just tell you, like, I did this movie for the money. Yep. I did this one because I didn't have anything else to do. 
Totally. But Carpenter might have semi-retired from film, but he has been able to follow his other passion of music, and he's released four studio albums. Lost Themes, Lost Themes 2, Anthology Movie Themes 1974 to 1998, and most recently Lost Themes 3, which I think just came out last year. Oh, wow. These albums have all been well-received, and John goes on tour with his son and godson performing these songs live, and I must go to one of these shows somehow. <laughs> I think they're about to go on another tour, but I think it's in like the UK and shit. So, oh, damn. but they have a screen playing in the background and when he's doing the movie scores, it'll have like movie scenes and shit in the background that he probably edited the video himself and stuff. And probably, and then he has original stuff. Well, they're all originals, but he has stuff that's not in the movies that he does as well. So, yeah, but the man definitely has a style of his own with the grittiness of the films, the synth themes, the anamorphic format, and his cinematography is obviously him, like in his movies. Like, you know, you're watching John Carpenter with the cinematography, and the man loved to use the steady cam. You can put all these things together and definitely pick it out in any Carpenter movie, as well as just like his, like I said, his general, it's the grittiness is really what sticks out to me the most, right? Like how raw the movies are. Exactly. His approach, see, it's his personality too. It's so blue collar. Yeah. It doesn't matter how far to one coast or the other you push him. He's still just a no bullshit blue collar guy. And yeah. uh, that that's that's the biggest thing I've seen come through with him. <laughs> like he'll, yeah. he's the kind of guy that'll tell you your shit sucks to your face and not <laughs> not care. Like somebody has to tell you. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and he's influenced many directors and inspired them. Far too many for me to cover on here. But so many directors have said John Carpenter was a huge influence. Some obvious examples are Robert Rodriguez, for one. I mean, just look at Planet Terror, right? That's yeah. a Carpenter movie. The Duffer Brothers of Stranger Things fame, yep. right? Jeremy Sonye said he was hugely inspired by him. And you yep. get that gritty, like, grindhouse-type action thriller out of Jeremy Sonye, right? Totally. And Edgar Wright has always said he's a huge John Carpenter fan. And okay. you can even see that in his horror comedies, I feel like. You get that vibe. And in John's personal life, he loves to play video games, work on music. He has a commercial pilot's license, and he likes to fly helicopters and planes and stuff. And that's probably why the thing has some of what it has in it. <laughs> and he hangs out with his wife, Sandy King. It's his second wife. Him and Adrian Barbeau were married for a few years. They had their son, Cody, and got divorced. And down the line, he met and married Sandy King in 1990, who ended up being a producer on almost all of his films since then. So he collaborates with her on his work. So. Yep. I do want to bring up a little bit more on the gamer thing. Like you've played dead space, right? So yeah. anybody who's played dead space is like that shit's straight out of the thing. And uh, <laughs> I saw an interview where they were talking and it was, it was for a gaming convention and they're like, is there any video game that, you know, you've played that, you know, you think would make a good movie and like dead space, all the fans want you to do a dead space movie. It's <laughs> like that I could probably do. Um, but it was real funny. Cause he's like, you know, I've loved video games since Sonic the Hedgehog on Genesis. Like that's when he got into gaming and it's, I didn't know any of this until doing a little bit of research for this episode. He's like, man, I like oh, okay. Fallout. I like Borderlands. I'm playing Horizon <laughs> Zero Dawn. Like, 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 I can't believe your lungs still function and you, you you play video games. I know, like, I remember when Wes Craven died. I was really shocked because he always just kind of seemed pretty healthy. And every interview I saw him in, and so is John Carpenter, too. I'm not saying he doesn't. But when you see how much that man chain smokes sometime, you're like, oh, God. And I guess some people just don't get cancer. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad, right? Like, <laughs> The commentary track on the thing, which was on the DVD, it's the one from the laser disc. It's just him and Kurt Russell. And you could just hear him lighting cigarettes and taking drags through the whole fucking commentary. 
God, I think I brought this up on the Halloween series or the slasher episode, but the original Halloween, the end scene when Jamie Lee Curtis is walking down the road, right, to go see what's going on at the house. You can see smoke drifting down the fucking road, and it's John Carpenter smoking while they're doing a take. Yes. But now that I feel like we know a little bit more about the man, it's time to dive into the movies, and I'm going to start us out with 1983's Christine. This movie was directed by John Carpenter, and I think we just covered this extensively, and I don't need to go into his body of work. (laughs) Okay. It's based on a novel by Stephen King, who, uh, duh, if you're here, you know things that Stephen King has made, and... (laughs) We're huge Maximum Overdrive fans on this podcast. Damn, yeah. But I'm talking about his novels. Everybody knows Stephen King. And the screenplay was written by Bill Phillips, who made a lot of TV movies, including El Diablo, which John Carpenter worked on with them. And I guess that one was kind of a Western also. I I do know, like, (laughs) somebody asked him on an interview. I should have said this earlier. They were like, why haven't you made a Western yet? And I've heard him say different things. Like, what, nobody offered it to him? (laughs) <laughs> and then another time he said, I don't ever want to make a Western movie because you have to clean up the horse shit in between takes. <laughs> but if you look at it between the movie he made really early in his career, before he started making his own movies in El Diablo, he's worked on some Western. So, yeah. And then he avoided the horse shit and vampires from making it modern times. But anyways, back to Christine with the cast. I'm going to start just doing like primary cast and not going into like side characters unless they're relevant and pop up in the story somewhere. Right. But it's starring Keith Gordon, who I always think of from Legend of Billie Jean. You're damn right. right. He's the asthmatic guy with like the horror mask and stuff like that. He was in so much more, but that's the movie that jumps out to me. But he's actually done more director work than acting work. He did the movie Waken the Dead as well as several other movies. But as far as TV shows go, several episodes of Dexter, The Leftovers, Fargo, and Homeland. No shit. And I don't mean like he did one. I mean, like he did huge blocks of them. He was even in an episode of Dexter, but it was one of them that he directed. Okay. And if I didn't say it, Keith Gordon's playing Arnie, our primary character in the film. And his buddy, Dennis, is played by John Stockwell, who I remember him from being in Top Gun, right? But he's in a bunch of other movies. But he also became a director and he did like Blue Crush, Into the Blue. I guess he liked surfer movies. Episodes of L Word, the SEAL Team 6 movie. Like, he, he's done a bunch of shit, too. And I think it's really interesting that they both went into directing. What's to say he didn't inspire them as well, right? Yes, but how are you leaving out my science project? <laughs> I've never actually seen that. <gasps> Blasphemy. <laughs> I vaguely remember that movie while remembering nothing about it at the same time. Oh, dude. Like, I just... feel like I saw it when I was a kid and I don't remember which movie it was. Oh, my God. Go back and watch it again. Anyways, <laughs> fucking love that movie. <laughs> This is going to be fixed in editing, guys, but I'm going to pull it up in IMDb real quick and see if I have an epiphany. <laughs> and no, I've never seen this movie. <laughs> oh, dude, you have to watch it. It is so much fucking fun, dude. And as far as our cast, I'm only going to go into one more person that I feel like is a, a main character in the movie. And that was Lee, played by Alexandra Paul, which she was most famous for Baywatch, yeah. honestly. And she was also in Melrose Place. The music was done by John Carpenter, of course, and Alan Howarth. And I mean, goddamn, the music and sound effects in this guy, you can't even do the list. But he's done most of the John Carpenter movies, most of the Star Trek movies, most of the Halloween movies. He did Army of Darkness. Oh, damn. And they're not all music. He also does sound effects, right? Like, there's lots of movies that we've covered, and he's on the documentaries usually. Like, you'd know him if you saw him with his glasses sitting there. And him and John Carpenter have collaborated together a lot. And the special effects, a lot of people worked in the special effects this movie, but Roy Arbogast was, I think it was the special effects supervising lead, but he did Jaws, 
like the shark, right? <laughs> Most John Carpenter movies. And then later whoa, whoa. in his you career. You mean that wasn't Ben Affleck? No. <laughs> and later in his career, he did like the fugitive Dante's peak chain reaction. Like he did a bunch of those like nineties movies, but okay. he did a lot of John Carpenter movies and Jaws. So that's pretty impressive. A few facts about the movie before I dive into it. The movie went into production before the book was even released. Oh, damn. Yeah, originally, John Carpenter was offered to do Firestarter, and he started on it, and he worked with the writer, and he passed, and I believe that's the same writer he brought in to do Christine. So okay. Firestarter was eventually made into a, a film, though. Yep. John did not want the movie to be rated PG. Remember, there was not a PG-13 rating back then. So he added lots of F-bombs just to ensure an R rating because he didn't think anybody would see it if it was PG. <laughs> a movie about a kid and his killer car and it's PG. I, I get it, right? Yeah, yeah. That'd be, no, no. You can't camp that enough. No. The neighborhood where Arnie's parents lived and they filmed all the neighborhood scenes, it's the same one from Halloween. Okay, I was going to ask that. So, <laughs> all right. That's why it looks so familiar. <laughs> I hate going to this in, in some of the movies because you'll hear blah, 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 you know, was offered the role and blah, 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 this. And you don't know what level it was at. And sometimes it's just their name was running around. Right. Yeah. But Kevin Bacon was straight up offered the lead role of Arnie, but he decided to take Footloose instead. Yeah, that's a good choice. <laughs> there are other people that you can see the names thrown around, but it's just you don't know at what level. Right. Darnell's garage was actually an old wire factory and they took half of it to make it look like the garage for the movie and use the other half as a body shop for all 14 of the Plymouth Furies. They only used 14. Somehow everything I read said 14 and it said the cars were 15% of the movie's budget. I could I see how that. accurate that was, but yeah, I was thinking maybe more, but cause it buy fifties cars. And the last little nugget that I wanted to do that I couldn't fit into the movie as I went, and this one was actually an add-on because I should have done it somewhere else, but they show the license plate regularly in the movie, and it starts with CQB, which means close quarters battle. Oh. I'm sure it was intentional. John Carpenter usually does things intentionally, right? But on to the movie. We open up at a car plant in Detroit Motor City in 1957 with Bad to the Bone playing in the background, right? And it's a very fitting use of the song, and it's effectively the theme song in the movie, right? Yes. We can see a red Plymouth Fury going down the line, and it's being inspected. The inspector lifts the hood and puts his hand on the frame of the car in front of the engine and looks under the car, and the hood slams on his hand, and we cut to him being taken away with his hand bloodied, mangled, and broken, and wrapped in bandages, right? Yeah, it's got a taste for blood now. Uh-huh. Another man then looks at the car on the line and starts to walk around it, and he decides to sit in it with his lit cigar that he's smoking, and he accidentally makes the mistake of ashing in the seat. And we then cut to closing time at the factory, and everyone's leaving, and the manager notices that a car has its headlights on, blaring the radio on the line, right? And he heads over, and it's the Red Fury from earlier, and he opens the door, and the cigar-smoking man falls out dead. So it's now claimed two victims. One of them lived, but he got fucked up. And we're still, like, in opening credits. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to do a whole lot of book versus movie until the end. I'll do a few of the big ones, but I really wanted to start out right here with this. The movie shows that the car was bad right out the gate, and this is a huge departure from the book, and it's going to be the main one I cover, and I'm going to go into further detail as the story progresses, but I just want to throw out that that is not the case in the book. Okay, good, because I want to know why is this car, is it just plain dag nasty evil, or is there something deeper that was covered in the book? 
both. Okay. The John Carpenter version, he decided to make the car evil right out the gate. Okay. <laughs> we then cut to Rockbridge, California, September 12th, 1978. You can tell it's a Stephen King story because it has dates in it. <laughs> Hell, I think Silver Bullet, the chapters are dates for the names. Like he does that a yeah. lot. But we can see Dennis picking up Arnie in his beautiful blue Dodge Challenger 440. And that car is why I fell in love with challengers and why I bought a blue one. I'm thinking subconsciously when I had mine before I had kids. I love the fucking car. We can see that Arnie's mom is not a fan of Dennis and Arnie is both a bit of a klutz and a nerd, right? As he's running out to the car and you really wonder how they became friends. It had to be a sandbox thing, right? Yes. That's what I was saying to the wife. Like they had to have been friends since diapers and then they just went down different paths in life because it makes no sense for the jock to be watching out for this kid the way he does. Right. But on the ride to school, because it's their first day of school, I think they said, we find out that Arnie's parents are really mad at him because he's taking shop class and it embarrasses them. And Dennis is like, how embarrassing <laughs> is your dad going to think it is when you can fix the car for him? And you don't have to take it to the shop. Oh. And we also find out that Arnie's really upset over a Scrabble game that the family played <laughs> because he used fellatio for some sort of combo point thing and his mom wouldn't accept it because it was profanity and beat him by two points. And that's really why he's mad. Just to let you know how innocent his character is right. Yeah. And Dennis lets Arnie know that since they're seniors, it's time that they get him late. Right. Yeah. So this is basically where American pie stole the plot from. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Not really, but they make it to school and we can see that Dennis is really popular and he plays football and that Kelly Preston really has the hots for him. And this is probably one of the first movies she was in actually. I didn't catch that. Okay. One of Dennis's buddies walks up to tell him about the new girl at school. And we can see her walking down the hall, getting a tour from the principal. And they all have the hots for her, like right out the gate. While all this is going on, Arnie can't get his locker open. And like, he makes fun of the guy for wanting to hit on the chick. Right. And it, he actually has a pretty decent burn, but then the guy makes fun of Arnie. Cause he can't even open his own locker. Right. Yes. And Dennis walks up and he like smacks the locker and then pulls the handle really quick and it opens. And Arnie's like, how'd you do that? And he's like, don't worry about it, Arnie. And he goes off to class and leaves Arnie who then shuts his locker without getting anything out or putting anything in to smack it and try to do it and realize he can't open his own fucking locker. <laughs> yep. This is how bright he is. I'm glad that in like the first five minutes of this movie, they really set up how his character was before the car. Like, this really embodies it. Yes, totally. But at lunchtime, Dennis is freaking out because he can't find Arnie, and one of their buddies runs up to let him know that he's being bullied by Buddy and his goons in shop class, and Dennis runs in to save him from Buddy and his goons. And Buddy looks like he's about 30, and he could have been like an action star in Patrick Swayze movies and stuff like that. Right. Like he's got that, like, look, he, he looks really out of place, but he does seem like a, a bully and an asshole in it. He looks like if I'm thinking of the right guy, he looks like he's fucking John Travolta and welcome back. Cotter. <laughs> <laughs> he also kind of reminds me of dude from the door. So, but jacked. <laughs> it's that hair. You're right. It is the hair. But Dennis stands up to him until Buddy pulls out a stiletto, right? And he like cuts open Arnie's lunch and he's threatening to stab everybody and My poor yogurt. Yeah, I know, I know. And Dennis is actually, you know, willing to fight the guy if we put the knife up, right? And Arnie ends up slipping on the yogurt on the ground and falling and his glasses get broken because Buddy stomps on him. And then Dennis like karate chops Buddy's wrist, making him drop the knife, right? And he decks him and knocks him fucking on the ground. And then Moochie runs up and grabs Dennis by the nuts and just keeps squeezing and yanking until he falls over, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> The shop teacher shows up and he's kind of a hard ass and he breaks up the fight and he knows that Buddy and crew are the troublemakers, right? And the teacher gets really rough with Buddy and um, 
Buddy looks a little intimidated by him. He'll try to have some like one-liners in there, but obviously you don't want to fuck with the teacher. And Dennis says that Buddy had a knife, and the teacher decides to ask Arnie. He seems to trust Dennis definitely more than Buddy, but he knows that Arnie wouldn't lie, right? Yeah. And he makes Buddy turn out his pockets, and Buddy's not very happy about it, but he has to pull out the fucking knife, right? We then cut to Dennis and Arnie driving home from school, and they're talking about Buddy getting expelled, right? And Arnie then freaks out and wants Dennis to stop the car and back it up. And it's because he saw an old, beat-up, rusted, full-of-holes Plymouth Fury with a for sale sign on it in a yard full of weeds, right? Yep. A real classy establishment. <laughs> Arnie is immediately in love with the car, and he wants to buy it. And Dennis tries to tell him how much of a piece of shit it is and to not buy it. And if you pay attention, when they look inside, you can see that the odometer has 93,475 miles on it. So try to remember that number. Okay. Okay. Dennis says that it probably won't even start. And then they're startled by the old guy with the snow shovel from Home Alone who says, oh, she'll start. You just need these. And he holds up the keys, right? I shit you not. <laughs> when it got to that scene, I turned to Ginger and I was like, Jesse's going to say that's the old guy from Home Alone. <laughs> <laughs> you know me too well, cuz. You know me too well. But while we're on the old guy from Home Alone, I should have wrote his name down. I'm sorry. What's up with the straight jacket thing that he has on? I know, right? Like, did, did he, <laughs> is he not supposed to be there? Is that even his car? <laughs> is the story about his brother even true? <laughs> is it a parachute jacket? Yeah. <laughs> We find out his name's George LeBay, and that's an important name to remember, not for the movie, but I'll kind of like bring that in with the book. Okay. Uh, okay. But George lets him crank the car and tells him that her name is Christine, and he says it belonged to his asshole brother who bought it brand new with six miles on it. And he said that car had the new car smell, and it's the greatest smell in the world. Well, maybe other than pussy, right? <laughs> and... It's a random line, and I only bring this line to attention because it's going to come up later in a way that affects the plot, okay? Yep. And George says that his brother went to hell and back with that car. He said his brother died, and that's why he's wanting to sell it, and he offers it to Arnie for—they end up agreeing on 250 right? I don't remember where they started. And Arnie's going to spend the money he's been saving for college on him, and Arnie's super pumped about this, and Dennis tries to talk him out of it, and he cannot— so Dennis then decides to try to talk George out of taking advantage of Arnie and George tells Dennis that he doesn't know half as much as he thinks he does. And then he gets an evil smile and calls him by an odd name. Shitter. Now, you know why I call people shitters all the time, Josh, if you didn't know <laughs> <laughs> that night, we cut to the Cunningham residence as Arnie is getting yelled at by his parents for purchasing the car. And Dennis is just kind of chugging milk in the background. Like this is fucking awkward. Can I leave? <laughs> And the mom immediately blames Dennis and she doesn't believe Dennis when he says that he tried to stop him and Arnie ends up going off on his parents and cussing at him. And they tell him he can't keep the car at the house and he runs out the door. We then cut to Darnell's auto wrecking where Arnie's going to rent a spot in the garage and we can see Dennis had to bring the muffler in the back seat. Like it's, it's sitting in the back seat of uh, Dennis's car hanging out the window. There was actually a cut scene where the muffler fell off and Dennis had to go get it. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. But the car is falling apart, right? And you have to honk the horn to get Darnell to open the garage door. Christine's horn doesn't work. So Dennis has to do it for him. And he just kind of rolls his eyes like, man, this car is fucked. It's a bad idea. Who has the bad idea, son? <laughs> and they go in and they meet Darnell. And he says that he knew a guy that had a car just like that once. Bastard killed himself in it. And he was meaner than hell. 
something about him pissing ice cubes or something. <laughs> and you can see that Darnell is stern, but you can tell that he just doesn't want to get burned, and he gives some rules, but lets Arnie keep the car there on a probationary period. Dennis takes Arnie home, and he wants to know if he'll be okay and why he's so obsessed with the car. And Arnie says he doesn't know why he feels that way about the car, but he's already talking about the car like it's a girl, right? Yep. Or his girl specifically. And the parents come out, and Arnie just blows past him and goes inside, and Dennis leaves this rather awkward moment right <laughs> we cut to october 9th at darnell's and we can see that arnie is stripping parts from the junkyard for christine and darnell and a buddy are admiring his work and how much he's actually gotten done in three weeks and darnell says that he works really cockeyed but he's got good hands good hands. bad taste in cars you can't polish a turret they mention how things like the wipers are pristine but the lights are busted out and I think it's because some of these repairs are Christine and not Arnie. Yes. And his clothes really change in this movie. And, and he basically starts to look like a greaser and he hasn't quite done that yet. He still looks like Arnie when he goes to school, slick back hair and he's dressed like, you know, rebel without a cause and everything. Yeah. But if you pay attention to this scene, he's got black boots on jeans and a white t-shirt with grease on it. And his hair is already slicked back. So he's already starting to look like a fifties greaser. This is the way Christine wants him to dress. Yeah, yeah. You're going out with me. You're wearing that. <laughs> exactly. But Darnell tells him that he did tell him he could pull parts out of the junkyard, but he did not expect him to rebuild the whole goddamn car out of his junkyard, right? <laughs> and Darnell says that he's not going to let anybody take advantage of him, but he tells Arnie that he seems like a good kid and he knows he doesn't have a lot of money and he wants to help him out and help him save money. So he tells Arnie that if he sweeps up the place, does a few lubes, puts the toilet paper on the little round things... He can, you know, pull as many parts as he want and use the space. And Darnell might even throw in a few bucks, he said. And Arnie says he has to think about it. Well, don't think about it too long. I'll throw you out your fucking ass. But after Darnell walks off from making his offer, Arnie sits in his car and he turns on a 50s love song. And he just hangs out and puts his head on the steering wheel, right? We cut to school during the day. We don't know how much time has passed. And we see Dennis and friends checking out Lee in the library as Kelly Preston's checking out Dennis. And they bet that he can't get a date with her because she says no to everyone who has asked her, right? And he succumbs to the peer pressure and tries. She lets him know that she can't go out with him because she already has a date. And he goes back to his seat defeated. Dennis shows up later at Arnie's and hears him arguing with his parents about going out. And he comes out dressed up and without his glasses. And we find out that he blew off hanging out with Dennis to go do work for Darnell, he says. But we do see him drive off in Darnell's caddy. And I know in the book, I think Darnell like ran drugs and shit too. And Orny was like helping him run shit. Yeah, yeah. Because nobody's going to suspect the nerdy kid, right? Yeah. If it wasn't drugs, he was doing guns or chopped car parts or something. I don't remember exactly what it was. It's been a long time since I read it. He was running some shit. Exactly. But mom wants to know what the hell is going on and ask Dennis about it. She says, you know, he's your best friend. Help me out here. And Dennis says he doesn't even know what's going on. He hardly gets to see him. And the mom says that he's obsessed with the car. And that when they went to go register it, they found out that the previous owner died in the car of carbon monoxide poisoning. Right. That's all they know at this point. Connect the dots. Exactly. And we find out that mom did not tell Arnie any of this. We see Dennis confront George LeBay with this information now that he knows it because he's worried that it could be like a leak or something in the car, right? He doesn't want to kill Arnie. 
Yeah. And George says that Dennis does not know shit and that his brother wanted to die in that car. So he put a hose in the pipe and killed himself in it. <laughs> and he said he loved that car and no shitter would come between him and Christine. His daughter even choked to death in the car and he still drove around in it without a care in the world. And he says that Arnie has the same look in his eyes as his brother. And this is where I'm going to tie into the origins of the car in the book versus the movie. Okay. In the book, the car is possessed by Roland LeBay, which I don't even think they say his name in the fucking movie. And that's why it's so evil and starts to possess Arnie. And also in the book, Roland would ride around in the back seat of the car while Arnie was driving it. So he's turning into Roland is what's happening. Gotcha. But the movie decided to go with this bad right out the gate. But you can tell he's turning into somebody else because he starts saying things that George said. So you can, you know, kind of put it together that George's brother probably acted that way. And it also makes you kind of wonder if George was a little possessed by the car. Yeah. Right. Like at this point in time, that's why he's trying to get rid of it before it got too bad. Because in the movie, it kind of seems like the car feeds off of Arnie and killing other people. Yeah. But in the book, if I remember correctly, as long as it kept moving, it could keep repairing. Okay. So, but it, it, it was possessed by Roland. That was, that was the crux of it. And John decided to cut all that out. I don't know why. Yeah. That, that makes things make, I, I like closure. That makes things make a whole lot more sense. I think it would have been cool to see Arnie driving and a creepy dude in the backseat too. Yeah. It's this dark passenger, but in a different way than Dexter. <laughs> but George also says his sister-in-law died in the car the same way Roland did. And that's when he finally made Roland get rid of the car, but the car came back three weeks later. (laughs) Dennis wants to know what the fuck that means, and George looks at him crazy. So later that night, we see Dennis breaking into Darnell's to check out the car, and he can see that it's fixed up a lot at this point, and the windshield like has just a tiny spiderweb crack, which it was fucked earlier, so it's weird like he put a broke window in. Or it's starting to repair itself, right? <laughs> he also notices, well, I don't know if he notices it, but the camera passes by the dash and we can see that the odometer now says 88,491 miles. So it has rolled back like okay. 5,000 miles at this point. Dennis tries to open the door, but he can't. And then he starts knocking on the door and the radio starts blaring. You keep on knocking, but you can't come in. And the startles <laughs> Dennis who runs away, right? And it's fucking perfect use of that song. We cut to a football game at the school and we can see that Dennis is playing. So obviously some time's passed and he notices that Arnie pulls up and now pristine Christine and buddy and a few of his, you know, goons notice this as well. And Moochie lets buddy know that he knows where Arnie keeps the car. Right. And Dennis starts running for a play and he gets distracted by Arnie getting out of the car, letting Lee out of the car. And then Lee and Arnie start to make out. And this confuses the hell out of Dennis. (laughs) And then he gets hit hard as fuck and messes his knee up real bad, which earlier in the movie, everybody was like, oh, is your knee better? Can you play this year? So he already had a bad knee. So we know he's fucked at this point, right? Yep. And that lets you know that when Lee said she already had a date, it was probably already Arnie. And when Arnie blew off Dennis, it was probably already to go on a date with Lee. He could have been doing some stuff for Darnell, though. We then cut to the hospital, November 5th, where Arnie's visiting Dennis, and he brings him a book. And Dennis has, like, a neck brace on. He's got, like, a rib brace on. His leg's completely, like, in a cast with pins and shit. He got fucked up. (laughs) And Arnie lets him know that he's came by to see Dennis several times, but every time he's drugged up and passed out, right? And Dennis says he's not going to get to play ball again. He's lucky he gets to walk again, right? Yeah. And Dennis wants to know what's up with Arnie and Lee. And Arnie lets him know that it's going great and they really, really like each other and respect each other. 
until we cut to the drive-in that night where it's pouring down rain and Arnie and Lee are making out and he tries to go a step further with her. And then she runs out of the car and says she can't. And he goes to talk to her and he wants to know what's wrong. And she says she can't do it in that car. She hates that car because he cares about the car more than he cares about her. And he talks her into getting back into the car and says girls should be jealous of other girls, not of cars. And she says this car is a girl, right? And she smacks the seat and he gets really defensive of the car. And he gets upset as well because he's like, it seems like nobody likes my car these days, right? (laughs) (laughs) But she grabs her burger off the dash and starts to eat it, which I read she was a vegetarian and had to do the scene like over and over again. (laughs) Oh, damn. (laughs) They didn't have plant-based burgers back then, in case you're wondering. (laughs) But while she starts to eat the burger, one of the windshield wipers pops off and Arnie's like, oh shit. And he jumps out to fix it because he doesn't want anything to happen to baby, right? And the radio kicks on with the 50s love song. The locks slam shut and it starts to glow inside like the briefcase from Bolt Fiction that we never got to find out what was in it. <laughs> and Lee's choking to death on the burger and she can't get out and Arnie can't get in on his door because it's locked, right? And she's struggling. She's fighting. She manages to get her door unlocked. And the man in the car next to her grabs her and gives her the Heimlich maneuver, saving her life. And Arnie's a dick about it, right? He's like, get your hands off my girl, right? Yeah. (laughs) She's fucking dying. (laughs) She's fucking dying, dude. (laughs) Arnie drops Leah off, and she's pissed about the whole night. And she tells him to get rid of the damn car because she's not ever getting in it again. And she mentions how like the radio kicked on with a song that was odd and how bright it got in the car and it was glowing. And she thinks the car tried to kill her. Right. And Arnie's just like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. You're fucking crazy. You don't put out <laughs> and you're crazy. Jeez. <laughs> she points out that the car only plays old songs and it stalls anytime they're making out like it's jealous. Right. And he starts to be a jerk with her and then he backs off and apologizes and he's being an ass again. And then he's apologizing again. And you start to see that a little bit with his character. And she says that she doesn't even know she wants to talk to him no more when he said, can I call you? Right. Yeah. And Arnie runs to his car and he can't get it to start. So he has to start talking to Christine and let her know that everything's okay and everything's the same. And then she cranks and starts to play a love song for him. Right. Arnie drops the car off at the garage, and while he's pulling in, Buddy and gang sneak in behind him, and he leaves, and they stay, and they beat the shit out of the car. Oh, and they pop a shit on the dashboard. I was fixing to say, there's there's some other shit that happens with the car. (laughs) (laughs) They really do kill the shit out of this car, though. They sledge out the glass, the lights, beat in all the panels, stab holes in the panels, crush the roof in, cut up the seats, tear out the radio, beat in the carburetors and the engine with the sledgehammer. This thing's fucked, right? Yeah, rip off all the fucking trim. It's it's, (laughs) Other than the paint, it's worse than how he found it. (laughs) Pretty much. And now that you say that, that makes me think of something else I'm going to say about the book. The car basically turned into that when Roland died in the book. Like, I think it looked fine, and then he died, and it reverted to show the damage it would have actually had. Oh, from everything it had actually been through. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now it's got a soul. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Somebody needs to swallow that soul. (laughs) The next day, we can see Arnie show up with Lee to get his wallet out of his car, and he actually talks her into going in the garage with him. So I guess she's starting to think that maybe it was silly that she felt that way about a car. And he says that they should go to the same college the next year so they could stay together and they could help each other with subjects each one's better at. And he's being really sweet until he notices that his car is fucking destroyed, right? Yep. Arnie's obviously distraught over the damage to his car, and Lee wants to know who would do something like this, and she tries to console him, and he starts yelling at her and then pushing her, and then he calls her a shitter, right? Yep. Fucking shitters. (laughs) 
We then cut to the Cunningham family dinner table where Arnie's parents are trying to tell him that they're really sorry about his car and he's just pissed. And he blames them, says it's their fault because if they would have let him put it in the driveway, it would have never happened. And they even offer to help him buy a new car. But he's not happy about this, tells him, fuck you, and then he's fixing up Christine. And his dad gets in his face and Arnie pushes his dad and then starts to choke him and then goes off on him and he lets him go and he just walks away with an evil grin, right? I'm going to hit the sack. Yeah, he says something like that. We see Arnie at the garage with Christine, and he says, don't worry, I'll fix you up, and we can show those shitters what we can do. He walks away, and he hears some electricity and parts grinding, and he turns around and sees that the windows are fixed, and the carburetor and engine are no longer crushed. And he walks in front of the car, and he delivers the famous show me line, right? Yep. The headlights light up super bright, and we can see one of the best uses of practical effects in cinema to me. I love this scene, but we watched the car literally repair itself in front of Arnie completely. And the way they did this was they built one of the prop car frames up with this body made out of this plastic that they said looked more like metal than actual metal, and then attached hooks all the way through the car attached to the body, right? And then that ran to cables and cranks, and then they started rolling the camera and turned on the cranks and just fucking pulled the car in and crushed it from the inside okay. and played it in reverse. Looked badass. Yeah, that's cool. Cause see, I, I knew it was reverse, but I didn't know it was a plastic car. That makes, that's how they pulled it off. <laughs> yeah. I always could tell it was reverse, but I was still like, how did they crush the fucking car? That's yeah. what I wanted to know. And it's hooks pulling from the inside and it, it looks amazing. You see Christine's headlights fire up a lot in the movie and they're super bright. And I'm trying to remember what they did. They did like double or triple the amount of power you were supposed to do on the lamps for that effect. And it would burn the lamps up like instantly. Okay. But they do that several times throughout the movie as well. Yeah. I love that. And I love that the, the lens flare that always works in a perfect blue line across the screen. Whenever you've got the headlights pointed right. at the camera throughout the movie, that's fucking great touch. So J.J. Abrams was obviously inspired. <laughs> he just didn't learn to do it the right way. Is what you're trying to tell Apparently. me. Apparently. Anyways, it, I know I'm talking about it, but it, it's a really cool effect. You can pull it up on YouTube. Type Christine, show me if you've never seen this movie. If you've never seen this movie, you should probably watch the fucking movie too. But yeah, yeah. We cut to Moochie walking down the street at night and Christine drives up to him in pristine condition, right? Already fixed up entirely. And the windows are blacked out so he can't see who's in it. And John Carpenter blacked the windows out for two reasons. One, it hides the stunt driver, right? Yep. Two, it's ominous and you don't know if Arnie's in the car or not. Yep. Which I don't think he is in some of these story-wise anyways. Yeah, I go back and forth. Definitely one of them because he has an alibi. Yeah. But Moochie tries to apologize to the car and then the lights crank on and Christine starts to chase him down and he runs and he cannot seem to get away until he sees a tight alleyway and he runs down it, right? But Christine still makes chase and she's bumping down the sides of the alley until he runs into like a dock loading area that's super tight, too tight for the car. And he runs in there, trapping himself and pulls the knife, right? And Christine stops right there so he can't get out either. And he starts to talk shit and then the car revs the engine and then forces itself into the tight space and just keeps crushing the side of it until it's able to get in and smush Moochie. He should have got his round ass up and ran across the hood in the top of the car. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's not like the car could have backed out really quick and dropped him, right? Oh, he still would have died. Uh, But yeah, that's (laughs) that's another scene that I love how that looks and how the car crushes in. Like it makes no physics and how far out the wheels are. It makes no sense, but I buy it. The way that was shot and done, I totally. Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming they actually squeezed a car into a tight brick wallway. So they just fucked up a fury to do it, right? Like it's the only way they could have done that. It might have been the plastic (laughs) shit, but you know. Yeah, awesome scene. And like a lot of Carpenter movies, 
not the next one we're going to see, but most of the violence you don't actually see happen. And there's not a whole lot of blood in the movie. True. I didn't say that earlier, but that is a John Carpenter staple. Halloween, people are walking out saying it was the bloodiest movie they ever saw. Barely any blood in it. A little bit on Jamie Lee Curtis's arm. You know what I mean? Yeah. But we cut to November the 23rd, and we see Arnie pouring a beer in Dennis's hospital room, and he asks Dennis if he heard what happened to Moochie, and he says it almost makes you feel sorry for the little bastard, right? So he's not <laughs> remorseful at all for what happened to Moochie. And Dennis wants to know how Christine's coming along, and Arnie says she's cherry. He has her totally repaired, and Dennis said that he heard it was totaled, and Arnie says that it was not really that bad, right, when she swept up the glass. <laughs> and Dennis says that he thinks Buddy did it, and Arnie says, don't worry, he won't have to worry about Buddy anymore, right? <laughs> Dennis wants to know what the fuck that means. And Arnie leaves, and they have an odd farewell, and Dennis seems to know something's up, and they do this thing where, like, catch a later, and they do the gun fingers. I, I meant to rewind the movie and, and look at the beginning one more time, and I was taking the notes, but I feel like they did it earlier in the movie, and it was like Arnie didn't know how to do it back right, which kind of goes in the possession thing a little bit, but I could also be reading into that. Huh. I'd have to go back and check that myself. And I watched all 25 minutes of deleted scenes for this movie, so I can't remember, so, so help me here. Did Arnie notice that Lee had signed Dennis's cast or was that in a deleted scene? That sounds familiar enough to me that I think it was in, in the movie proper. Okay. There's a lot of extra stuff with Dennis and Lee that was cut. I think most of it, I'm glad they cut it, but <laughs> I couldn't remember if that was there or not. Cause different people signed the cast. I feel like Arnie signs the cast, right? And he sees where Lee had signed it. So that's yeah. how he knew about the car. That's how Dennis knew something was wrong with the car. But Arnie leaves the hospital and heads to his car, and Detective Junkins is waiting for him, who's played by Harry Dean Stanton, who shows up in a lot of John Carpenter movies, right? Yeah. And he wants to talk to Arnie about his car, and he says that he does some goddamn good body work because he heard the car was totaled, and he can't even see where the holes were filled in, right? And he also comments on the color and how rare it is because they don't make it anymore, and he wants proof of where Arnie says he bought it from. And Arnie says he bought it out of town, tossed the ticket. He doesn't have it anymore, right? Yeah. He's full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's really bizarre though, because I don't know, like Junkins doesn't know the car's alive and evil, but he's like, Oh, you can't even see the repairs, you know, and stuff like that. And what sense would that make to him? To me, that seems like that would exonerate him. Yeah. Like there's no way he fucking killed Moochie. The car is fine. You know, exactly. Cause that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to see if there's any damage from the Moochie incident. But Arnie finds out that Lee told the detective about his car and Junkins asks about someone defecating on the dash. And Arnie says that shit wipes off. Right. And the detective says, well, Moochie got wiped off too. And he says they even had to scrape him off with a shovel. And Arnie is really sympathetic. Well, isn't that what you're supposed to do with shit? Scrape it up with a little shovel. I think that would be enough to like, all right, come on, let's, let's bring you down to the station and talk a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> you still have to have proof though. He doesn't have anything. Oh, come the on, car is fine, right? He could have just smacked him. He <laughs> <laughs> yeah, beat him with a phone book. But just to show that Junkins doesn't have anything to bring Arnie in on, Arnie wants to know when it started being illegal to fix up your car, and Detective Junkins says it's not, and Arnie basically tells him to fuck off, right? Yep. And it's because he was like, oh, usually people place a police report, you know, and he's like, it just, it wasn't that bad. Everybody's making it sound like it was worse than it was. I fixed it pretty easy, right? I'm that fucking good. Good hands. Bad taste. <laughs> but Arnie goes to the garage and he calls Lee and he gets into a fight with her and you can tell he's conflicted. Like he loves her and like it's two people on his side of the conversation. Right. Cause you got one telling her to go fuck herself and the other apologizing for it and saying that he loves her. And it goes back and forth. And that really to me goes in the possession thing, or it could just be the car taking him over, which is 
still technically possession. possession thing, right? Yeah. But you can tell that there's like Arnie in there and then there's this other thing, right? We cut to December 16th and we see Buddy and the psychic dude from the beginning of Ghostbusters getting some booze and heading out for the night. Uh, do what now? One of Buddy's crew members has the big, tall, poofy throw oh, hair. Oh, okay, 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 okay. Yeah, he's the one that keeps getting shocked by Bill Murray, and Bill Murray's hitting on the girl that's not psychic. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Don't know his name, but I instantly recognized him. <laughs> he's been around the whole time. He was in the shop scene and all that shit. Yeah, yeah. I just didn't think to mention him. But they're getting some beers at like a mini mart, and they're heading out for the night. And while they're driving, someone starts to ride their ass with the high beams on, and Buddy locks it up and then goes in reverse at the car to give them a taste of their own medicine, right? We can see that it's Christine, but they don't realize that. And it's just like Moochie. He's caught off guard because there's no way it's Cunningham, right, in the yeah. car because they fucked it up so bad. But Buddy takes off, and Christine makes chase. And I want to point out that the windows are blacked out once again, right? Like, so you don't know what's going on. Buddy pulls into a gas station where one of his other buddies is working in the garage and he gets out and he's like, we're going to get this fucker or something. And Christine comes flying in and slams in a buddy's car. And then he rams into the Ghostbusters guy, killing him. And we can see gasoline leaking everywhere. And then Christine rams into the new guy that we saw in the garage, killing him. And it tosses a spark. And this catches the whole station on fire. And Christine is completely engulfed in flames. And Buddy takes off running, and Christine backs up on fire, looks badass as hell, rams through the gas pumps, blowing up the whole station. And we cut to one of my favorite shots in the movie, and it's Buddy running down a dark street for his life while Christine's just slowly creeping on fire behind (laughs) him. totally engulfed in flames still. Yeah, yeah. And it looks really cool, and then the car just kind of runs over Buddy, killing him, and his body's like spinning down the street on fire. And the way it happens, you almost didn't even realize he got hit. It was one yeah. of those, like, you didn't see the violence on screen kind of exactly. things, right? Like, just a squirrel. <laughs> Jeez. Squirrel. I live in the country. I'm allowed to say that. <laughs> Jeez. But we cut to Darnell sitting at the auto shop, and he sees the garage door come up, and he sees Christine creep in smoking and just burn the hell and back, right? She's not on fire anymore. She's just smoking, and, like, you can tell it's just utterly burned up, right? Yeah. And she drives to her spot and backs in and parks. Darnell knows something's up, right? So he goes into his office and he calls his other shop and he wants to know if Arnie got there okay with the delivery. And he wants to make sure that Arnie was there in Darnell's caddy, right? And the guy confirms that Arnie was there. So there's no way Arnie's in that car. Yep. So Darnell knows something's up and he grabs his double-barreled shoddy and he approaches the smoldering car. He then opens the door up with a towel because it's hot as shit and he finds the car empty. And we know for sure at this point, the car just went and killed Buddy and crew by itself. Yes. So it's safe to say it probably killed Moochie on its own also. I'm okay with this. And for some reason, Darnell thinks it'd be a cool idea to set inside the car now, even though even the insides burn the shit back <laughs> from the heat. And he grabs the steering wheel and the radio cuts on. And then the doors slam and lock and the seat starts to push itself up, up, up further, way up until it crushes Darnell into the steering wheel, killing him. And I don't know, like, this is a weird scene to me because one, like I said, why'd he get in the car? And yeah. two, why did Christine kill him? He's yeah, always what, been nice to Arnie and helped him. Yeah. You, you've had a place, you've had a uh, sanctuary, basically. Uh, <laughs> I'm assuming he's seen too much. He just saw the car pulling by itself. Hey, tying up loose ends. And he wasn't scared to get in the car, though. That's what the, the thing, though. Him getting in is the part I can't get past. It makes absolutely no sense. Unless the car can, like, seduce you or glamour you and that's how it gets Arnie, right? Hey. 
I mean, I'm reading into it a bit, but maybe it like coerced them in, right? Like, come, come sit in me. It's pleasant inside. <laughs> but we see the rebel without a calls version of Arnie show up at the garage and the detectives there, Junkins again, questioning him and wants to know where he was last night. And he says that he had to pick up a delivery for Darnell's boss and drove it in Darnell's caddy. And he shows him the receipt. He actually has the receipt this time. He didn't <laughs> toss it. And he says, you can call my mom to verify that I came home last night and I never left. But Detective Jenkins lets him know that Darnell was found dead in his car with his shotgun and he was crushed. So he had to have been placed there. And then his car was also seen the night before chasing Buddy, right? He doesn't mention if it was on fire, though. But they cut the corner and we can see that the CSI team's checking out the car and Christine once again looks cherry, right? Like nothing's happened to it. Yep. We can see Lee call Dennis and say that she wants to see him about Arnie and we can see that Dennis is out of the hospital now and they meet up and talk about the car and Dennis tells her the backstory of the car that he heard and she says that she thinks that she was the next victim of the car, but she was barely saved, right? Dennis lets her know that he's going to go over to Arnie's that night for New Year's, and it's like a tradition that he always does with Arnie's family, and he says that he'll talk to him about getting rid of the car, and she wants to know what they'll do if he doesn't want to get rid of the car, and Dennis says they'll destroy it, right? Yeah, yeah, sure he will. <laughs> Lee sneaks out just as Arnie rolls up, and he doesn't see Lee sneaking out, luckily, and he makes fun of Dennis and his crutches, and Dennis calls his car a rust bucket and Arnie says that she's sensitive and to not talk bad about her. So Dennis apologizes to the car and they head out. <laughs> Arnie's hauling ass down the street and we can see that they're now 68,461 miles in the car. So it's rolled back. Not, um, So it's rolled back like 30,000 miles at this point. Right. Yeah. And if you look at the camera stays on the odometer, this is the first time we've seen it moving and the odometer is rolling backwards as he drives it. Like I said in the book, the car would repair itself as long as it kept moving, but the movie kind of goes off the feeding off of Arnie and Bodies thing too a little bit, okay. so I don't know. You can take it either way, but the odometer's definitely rolling back, so. Arnie's chugging beers. He's driving the car, and he offers some to Dennis because he says his car is Dennis's car, right? Or my beer is your beer. Would my, he says something like that, right? Yeah. And Arnie wants to give a toast, and he says, death to all the shitters of the world. And Dennis says he can't drink to that but he could drink to friendship. And Arnie's like, okay, yeah, let's do that. And we can see Arnie's not acting like himself. And I, I don't know. He's turning into Roland to me, but they just don't address that in this film at all. Yeah. And Arnie starts to scare Dennis by flooring it and taking his hands off the wheel. And the car guides itself down the interstate. And it's like turning down S curves on its own and stuff. <laughs> and Arnie says that he's jealous of the car. But they can always be friends if he'll just stick with them. And he says that he knows what happens to shitters that don't, right? And Dennis wants to know who all the shitters are. And Arnie says all of them. Everybody's shitter. <laughs> Arnie starts spitting some shit out about love and nothing stopping true love. And Dennis thinks he means Lee. And he's like, you really feel this way about her? And he's like, fuck no, man. I'm talking about Christine. And <laughs> there are not any shitters coming between me and Christine. And Arnie looks at Dennis and says, there's nothing finer than being behind the wheel of your own car, except for maybe pussy, right? <laughs> so you can hear Roland coming out. Well, George, in this case, you can hear George. That's what George said earlier, right? Yep. Coming out in him. So you start to wonder if everybody was acting like everybody or if John just kind of put the characters together or the writer, right? Yeah. But he definitely sounds like LeBay from the beginning. And I don't know. There's some possession going on one way or the other. Agreed. But at this point, we're hitting the third act of the film. And we can see Dennis carve Darnell's tonight in the hood of Christine at school the next day, right? And him and Lee drive off. Lee's driving because Dennis can barely walk. 
Yeah. We cut to the garage at night and see Dennis and Lee break in and we can see that the police has shut down the whole garage and it's emptied out now, right? And Dennis goes to get the Caterpillar bulldozer that we saw outside earlier in the movie. I don't know if I mentioned it, but they walked past it. You can see it in the background. And Lee hops in and they position it in the garage where they want it. And John Stockwell actually got a license for driving a dozer just for the movie. So he could do it properly. Yeah, Yeah. And I feel like in the movie somewhere they mentioned how he did construction work as a summer job. Like at the beginning when they're going the first day of school, I, I think that was like just a throwaway line in there, but that's so you know, he could drive a bulldozer maybe that works. Cause he seems to know how to drive it when he gets in there. Right. Cause he, I mean, he had to hotwire the fucking thing, but he knew how to drive it, <laughs> but he has the bulldozer parked in the back and he tells Lee that Christine will come in through that door right there. And for her to hide in the office and push the button to close the door and he'll fire up the dozer, right? And she starts to head towards the office, and we can hear a synth sting as Christine's headlights come on, and we can see that she was hidden in the back of the garage under some rubble, and Christine chases Lee down, who then, like, jumps up onto some kind of overhang, right? And the car nearly passes her, and she falls down. And I want to bring up a, a little side story thing here. Okay. She has a real-life identical twin sister. Oh. Who's not an actress. And she wanted to fuck with John Carpenter. <laughs> so she brought her sister in that morning, got her hair and makeup done, just like her. And they're doing that whole scene. And somewhere in there, John wanted to know, like, did you forget how to act or, <laughs> or something? Like, <laughs> did, did did they fire and find, like, a replacement girl? I think is what he actually asked, right? And then he figured out that it was a joke. And they actually kept a clip of the sister in there. And you can see it in the bulldozer. During one of the, when she's sitting in there with him when they're, like, parking it, yeah. you can tell that she looks slightly different. No but shit. that's a pretty funny joke, right? That's funny. But anyways, we see Christine smash into another car that was still parked in the back after missing Lee. And we can see that Arnie's actually in the driver's seat at this point because it cuts in. So Arnie's in the car this time. And Dennis fires at the bulldozer and he uses it to guard Lee, right? Like he's he's got her like pinned in between the wall and the dozer so that Christine can't get to her. And Christine keeps smashing the scoop on the front of the bulldozer from both sides trying to get to her and he just can't. And the hood's all torn up and it purposefully looks like shark's teeth. Yeah. It's yeah. fucking awesome. It's kind of cool. But once Arnie realizes that he can't get to her through the bulldozer scoop, he backs up and he slams into the office wall and he starts yelling shitters to everybody. Right? <laughs> and he backs all the way up into the darkness of the garage where he came from originally. And we can start to hear the car repair itself. And then we cut to the inside of Christine and Arnie looks so much like a ghoul or a vampire or something in this part of the movie. He's like pale, with the dark rings around his eyes. Like, he's either fully possessed by Roland or the car sucked his soul out at this point. Whatever approach they were taking, they don't explain it. (laughs) Yeah. But Dennis pulls head on with Christine, and her lamp's cut on super bright, and you think they're going to play chicken, but the bulldozer dies, right? And You got to remember, they found it in a (laughs) scrapyard. And... Lee's in the office at this point trying to take cover and Arnie cuts Christine over and tries to ram into the office wall. He doesn't know there's like a solid concrete divider wall there and Christine slams into it and Arnie flies out the window and he lands on the ground. He's got a huge shard of glass hanging out of his gut and he grabs Lee before collapsing and he does this like blood curdling scream. That's kind of awesome. And he touches (laughs) Christine with his bloody hand one more time and then he dies. And as he dies, the car powers off. And on the commentary on one of the versions of this movie, I ended up reading it and seeing clips of it. But Keith Gordon said that he just imagined Christine as a girl the whole time and that different parts of the car were like parts of a girl's body. 
so okay. that he could like touch the car in certain ways. I don't, I'm assuming that was the lips there, but you know, okay. He did it so he would look like he was embracing the car, but that's really the vibe you get as he dies there. But Lee stumbles out of the wreckage crying and Dennis gets the dozer started and Lee lets Dennis know that Arnie's dead and the radio cuts on playing I'll Love You Forever, which is a 50s love song because that's all the car plays. And it starts to go after Lee and Dennis pins her in between the bulldozer and an I-beam in the warehouse, right? Yep. And by she, I mean the car. I'm sorry. It's Christine. (laughs) It's okay. I know. But Christine squeezes out and tries to drive off and Dennis pins it down with the scoop from like the, the, like he brings the scoop down on the uh, trunk of the car. Right. Yeah. And he starts to drive over the car, crushing it. And the car appears to be dead. And then Lee runs in with Dennis into the bulldozer and they embrace. And then the car starts to repair itself under the bulldozer, lifting it up again. And then Dennis just says, fuck it. And he drives over the entirety of the car, crushing it this time. And, we hear rock and roll is here to stay. Come on the radio. And the car just keeps repairing. And Dennis has to just keep fucking driving over the car <laughs> until he thinks he's finally killed it. Right. And I guess Dennis really showed that shitter. What's up? <laughs> we cut to the junkyard with the cars crushed into a cube and dropped on the ground. And we did have the writer of the movie and George Thorogood, singer of bad to the bone operating the machinery here to crush the car. But their acting was so bad that John Carpenter had to cut the scene. Oh, nice. (laughs) But Dennis Lee and Detective Junkins are there to watch the car die, and Junkins lets them know that they're heroes, and then they hear the radio cut on with a 50 song, and they think it's a car, but it's a dude walking by with a boombox. God, I hate rock and roll. The camera then pans in on the cube of what's left of Christine, and we can start hearing some creaking sounds like it's repairing, and we cut to the credits, bad to the bone, the end. A few more movie and book differences. While the movie takes place in Rockbridge, California, the book takes place in Libertyville, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb of Pittsburgh, right? And in the book, Arnie dies in a separate car accident. Had nothing to do with that final scene there. And in the film, he dies after being impaled on a broken piece of glass, right? Like, that's not how he died. He just died in a car accident. Huh. And also in the novel, Detective Junkins was killed by Christine. But in the film, obviously, he was alive at the end because he's standing in the junkyard. Yeah. And that's the movie. I'm sure you could find all sorts of other fun facts. But (laughs) I think we covered it pretty well there. And I love this movie. I've always loved this movie. I saw it, I don't know, 90s. And I've watched it time and time again. And it's just, you know, it's a... I don't mean simple in a bad way, but it's just a very simple story, right? Like it's, it's a slasher. I've called this movie a slasher movie before. Christine's a slasher. Yes, she stalks totally. her prey. She kills him. That's probably why I like the movie because I love that type of horror films. But it's a really well-made movie. The score was on point. The directing was great. If the book never existed or you didn't know it existed, like any of the things I pointed out, you probably wouldn't have a problem with whatsoever the special effects were great and it was just a really fucking good movie and it's one of my favorite stephen king adaptations yeah i had never knowingly seen this movie till a week ago and oh really yeah i'm actually surprised i never played this one for you with you being like a car guy and shit (laughs) i can remember reading the name of the movie on vhs tapes of my dad so it could have been a a jesus tape victim or i could have just never watched (laughs) it i just remember reading reading the name but yeah, everything you said, it, it's it's well put together. It's simple. It's basically a slasher flick. It's a fun concept. I like the movie The Car. I think the the version that I remember is the remake because the original okay. version of The Car is like a 30s movie, I think. And it gives me those vibes, but it's not a ripoff movie. The whole tie-in with the possession of the owner 
is great. I like yeah. you. I really wish more of that had been brought into the movie from the book, knowing that now. And it wouldn't have taken much. Very little exposition right. would have covered that. But yeah, really fucking fun movie. And you got, you know, Harlan from fucking My Science Project as a car guy again. And I'm okay <laughs> with that. <laughs> and some people might have thought it was odd that I decided to start the Carpenter series out with Christine, right? Because it's not one of the first movies that come to people's minds. We've already done Halloween. So, you know, yeah. that was gone. So it was a gimme. <laughs> but I really feel like this movie completely encompasses all of John Carpenter's style. And, and you know what I mean? Like it, oh, it yeah. feels like a Carpenter movie. Like some of his movies, part of it feels like a Carpenter movie and part of it tells the studio or, or budget or, or the, or something, you know, interfered with it. But this one like through and through feels like an original Carpenter movie, like some of his favorite cult classics. Right. And this might not be one of his favorite movies that ever made, but he, he said he thought it turned out to be a pretty good little film is what he said. And that's a fucking stamp of approval from John Carpenter. <laughs> But for our next film, we're really going to dive into one that people think of when they hear John Carpenter. <laughs> and that's going to be when Josh covers 1982's The Thing. I got to preface this with, I did not see this movie until last year. I remember when you said that, my mind was fucking blown. <laughs> I can't believe I missed out on it. It was directed by John Carpenter, in case anybody was wondering in this episode. What kind of stuff did he make before this? He made like some horror and some slasher and some sci-fi oh, okay, stuff. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Now, it was written by uh, Bill Lancaster and John W. Campbell Jr. Now, Lancaster did the thing and anything that's ever been filmed that says Bad News Bears on it. And that's it. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and Campbell Jr. only did this and other thing-related things, like shorts okay. and video games. The composer, whose name I'm going to absolutely destroy, Ennio Morricone, or Morricone, I'm sorry, man passed away last year. My bad, not good with names. 522 credits to his name. Jeez. As a composer? As a composer. And what's crazy is that Carpenter lifted the dun, 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 that you hear uh, whenever you go to a Shutter movie. Go, you know, go yeah. to a fucking Shutter But anyways, wherever you watch a Shutter movie. And <laughs> because Carpenter wrote that music piece for Shutter, but did it by pulling some from this movie, which is just okay. crazy to me. The cast, once again, like Jesse said, there this is an ensemble cast of 12 men, and that's leaving out the Norwegians. So I'm just going <laughs> to hold on four key actors in the movie. So if I'm leaving out a prominent horror person, hopefully you'll let me know. But number one, we got Kurt Russell as uh, McCready, who I'll probably mm -hmm. refer to as Mac the whole time. Going back to the Elvis TV movie that was directed by John Carpenter, like you said. Yep. For me, Tango and Cash, Backdraft, <laughs> Stargate, and more recently, Death Proof. But, of course, the band's been a bazillion things. And like I think you said in an earlier episode, he's just going to play Santa Claus every couple of years for the rest of his career. <laughs> he is Santa Claus to my kids. <laughs> Diabetes himself, Wilford Brimley. <laughs> <laughs> that man could sell some diabetes testing supplies. I'm just saying. Oh, as Dr. Blair, Cocoon, Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins, and 70-something other roles. But to me, yeah. he's always Cocoon and being in Remo Williams. Keith David as Childs. Yeah. This was his first movie. Really? Yeah, he had done like a couple of little things, but no, no, no actual Hollywood movies until this. Okay. And of course, he's in They Live, Roadhouse, Requiem for a Dream. He does a shit ton of voiceover work, just like big career. Yeah, he's Dr. Facilier in the uh, Disney Princess and the Frog. Like he's the voodoo guy on that singing and everything. Hey, he's the voodoo guy in this too. <laughs> yeah. 
I always think of him in Minute Work with Charlie Sheen oh, and wow. Emilio Estevez, where he's like the I hate fucking rent a cops. <laughs> he's that guy. I haven't thought of that movie in a while. He's in a shit ton of stuff. I love this guy. We've also got Richard Mauser as Clark, who I have to bring up because he was in my science project. So there's a thread. <laughs> <laughs> License to drive, you know, the two fucking Corey's movie. Yeah, yeah. He was in the OG It and fuck yep. ton of TV. We got Donald Moffat as Gary, who's the commander, at least in the beginning of this ragtag group, um, who's done a lot of TV. <laughs> and I couldn't find anything that I'm like, oh, yeah, I recognize him from that. But I just feel like I've seen him everywhere. Yeah, he's one of those guys. There's some more people in here, and I was just going to warn you that I am terrible with most of the people in this movie's names. It's like other than Mac, Blair, Childs, <laughs> and like the the dude with the fucking lobster claw. Actually, I can't even think of which one that is right now. I'm terrible <laughs> with names in this movie, and I apologize in advance if I ask for help. Hey, that's okay. The whole fucking crew was terrible with it because they'd like have them all standing together. It's like, we got 12 people in the shot, and they're all standing outside. Who the fuck's who? Because it's Antarctica. Right. <laughs> Running joke in the production of the movie. Did they actually film it in Antarctica? No, they okay. filmed it in Canada, but we'll get to that. Special effects, Rob Bettine, when he was in his early 20s, knocked it out of the fucking park on this with a little bit yeah. of help from Stan Winston, but we'll get to that. We've mentioned him before. I always mention him because of legend. Like that man fucking did magic in that movie and he did magic in this movie as well. And yeah. Like I said, when we were covering Legend, he did a few other things. The most recent thing being a little bit of Game of Thrones and just kind of disappeared. A little bit of behind the scenes before we get into it, and then there'll be a further sprinkling. So John Carpenter said that he was literally scared by the original movie, The Thing from Another World. Yeah. But later he read the short story, Who Goes There, and liked it even more. Because the mm -hmm. original Thing from Another World was the typical old school like universal thing of put a man in a suit and that's the monster. And the actual short story really went more into the isolation who's infected side of things. And, and how are we going to do this? So Toby Hooper of all people what? was originally slated to direct this. And this was like in 72 when the idea okay. was first being kicked around and had it went the way he was thinking, it was just going to be man in Antarctica fights, big monster. Like, okay. Not very imaginative from what little bit that I read. But then, of course, Halloween comes out. And then after that, it it was sealed. And that's how it ended up getting it, getting the project to John Carpenter. Right. Because this is like his dream project. I think he actively sought it out, right? Because yes. he loved that movie so much. Yeah, because yeah, he was like, oh, Toby Hooper's doing that sad face. <laughs> but he, he ended up doing it anyways. <laughs> As you alluded to earlier, one, this movie got fucking destroyed by critics when it came out. Because... People thought it was gore for the sake of gore, which yeah. was none of that. I think they were just that terrified by the monsters they saw. Nobody I mean, the monsters it. are pretty horrific and gory, though. Yeah. N nobody understood the movie. It took years for it to find its audience. And the other big issue being it was released two weeks after E.T. And E.T. <laughs> was a fucking juggernaut. And yeah. I think the, the dichotomy between idiot and and the thing <laughs> you know like right which one do you want to like hold <laughs> like i want to hold et <laughs> right everybody got the family friendly alien film and then this came out and it was like what the fuck <laughs> so all the outside shots was shot in uh british columbia canada okay the uh dog chopper chase at the beginning was shot in alaska though and there's some other shots pretty much when you just see a chopper flying with mountains in the background that's alaska Okay. Now, the rest of it was shot in L.A. on sound stages, and they literally refrigerated the uh, sound stages and put in humidifiers and spritzers 
to get the okay. air as cold and humid as possible so you could see people's breath and really buy that they were in the cold. Fucking genius. Yeah, it's awesome. That's a really nice touch, too, because you can see their breath the whole time, and you don't get that a lot in movies. Well, in modern movies, you get the shitty you know, CGI version. but Exactly. So everyone who worked on this movie got at least a cold or the flu once during production. <laughs> Quick thing to point out, the version of the movie that I own is the collector's edition, although when I watched it with the commentary track, it was missing stuff that was brought up about not being in the original version of the film. I don't think there's that much extra in the collector's edition except for the stop okay. motion stuff towards the end, which is brief, and we'll talk about that when we get to it. John Carpenter on most of his big movies got pretty much full editorial rights usually. So you got a lot of his vision in the movie anyways, right? Yes. And that's exactly what happened on this one. We have another story of that shit's terrible. It's getting cut out. <laughs> yeah. So we open with a shot in space of this large saucer entering Earth's atmosphere over Antarctica. And then we get a title card and it's awesome because it's the thing and it like melts away, but there's light shining through it. Yeah. Dude who did it took an aquarium, filled it with smoke, did the thing pass through artwork on the back of it, then put garbage bags behind that, then put lights behind that, and then just melted the garbage bag. Nice. That's, that's how they did it, and it's fucking awesome. We then see Antarctica, winter 1982. We then see a chopper chasing a dog through the snow. The chopper's yep. flying. And uh, <laughs> then dude and the chopper all of a sudden start shooting at the damn dog while they're chasing yep. each other through the snow. Then we see a sign and we cut to outpost 31 station number four. And we see some guys enjoying downtime in a rec room. And <laughs> we see McCready getting his ass kicked in computer chess by Adrian Barbeau. Cause she's the voice of the computer in the scene where it's like nice. checkmate. And he just pours his JB into the fucking machine and says, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing that's when they were married. Yes. The chopper dog chase arrives near the camp. And uh, now dude's upgraded to grenades and he's fucking hooking grenades. And he still can't hit that dog. <laughs> and the chopper lands and the station crew spills out to see what's going on. And what's going on is dude drops another grenade over his shoulder as he's cocking back to throw it. Ends up yes. blowing up the helicopter pilot and the helicopter in the process. While yelling shit Norwegian the whole time. And here we go. So the dog makes friends with the crew as the Norwegian dude exclaims. And no one knew this for years if you spoke English, but in Norway, they knew exactly what was said here. And it was, get the hell away from that thing. That's not a dog. It's some sort of thing. It's imitating a dog. It isn't real. Really? Yes. Lays out the whole thing right there if you speak the language. <laughs> but these guys don't. <laughs> And uh, the Norwegian dude is fucking serious and he starts trying to shoot the dog and he shoots George instead. Gary busts out a window with his pistol and shoots the Norwegian dead in the fucking eye. Yep. So the guys put the chopper out and they notice it's loaded up with kerosene. Meanwhile, Clark befriends the dog. We'll pretty much find out later that Clark is the kennel guy. He's the dog guy. It makes sense that he's attached to this dog that's just showed up at their camp. Yeah. So Mac and Dr. Cooper then head off in their chopper to the Norwegian station to see what the hell's going on. While this is going on, we see an awesome long shot of Jed the dog. Now, once, once we're in the camp, the, there's a different dog than what we saw running in the snow. Is this dog they had named okay. Jed. He's half wolf. And the shot of him coming down the hallway and like looking in one door and then coming over and looking in another door and then stopping at the one doorway and never looking at the camera, did it in four takes. The dog did that whole thing in four takes. <laughs> Carpenter goes on and on about how it's like, you don't work with animals. And this one was awesome. Scary as hell to have on set. Cause he's half wolf and you never know when he's going to freak out, but awesome dog. 
And uh, the last room the dog actually walks into, you can see the shadow of someone on the wall, but we're unsure of whose room it is. But it must be Clark, right? To make it even harder on anyone watching the movie to try to figure out who it is, they actually just grabbed a random crew person and set them up in front of a light for that shot. So you couldn't decide who it was in the cast. So meanwhile, Mac and Doc find the other station, the Norwegian one, fucking torched. And this was shot after they finished principal photography because this is actually the remains of Outpost 31 after, well, Station 4 specifically, after they level it. That's what you're seeing here when they come up on the Norwegian station. And uh, so once they go inside, they find a crewman who slit his own wrists and throat, a giant empty block of ice that looks like it used to contain something, <laughs> and a burn-up society-looking puddle of people. Have you ever seen the flick Society? Uh-uh. We watched it not too long ago. I'm pretty sure it's Screaming Mad George, but towards the end of the movie, everyone in this party like literally absorbs into each other in one big orgy. And Okay. That's what this torn apart two-face thing in the puddle looks like. And I will refer to this thing as the puddle. Doc also manages to grab some research notes and some videotapes, and they load it all up on the chopper and head back. So once they get back, they have Blair start an autopsy on the puddle, and he removes nothing more than human organs. Everything inside seems to be up to snuff. (laughs) That night, we see Clark take the new dog down to the kennel with the other dogs. He lets the dog in, and it lays down with the other ones. And as soon as he walks away, new dog starts to fucking mutate. And like this other head starts to come out of its head and it's got all these squiggly tentacles that start coming out of it. Of course, all the other dogs are already panicking. They're fucking, they're howling and wailing. One dog's smart enough that he's like eating pieces of the fucking chain link fence to make a hole bigger. Like I have to escape, but he doesn't escape. He gets shot with this goo that we're going to find out later incapacitates him. But it's just, just clusterfuck of what the fuck is going on in this kennel. And uh, Mac, hears the commotion. And Mac's smart enough that he hits the fucking fire alarm before he even runs down there because he's like, something isn't, I've done seen some shit. Right. <laughs> like, the other station dude killed himself, everything's been getting burnt, what the fuck's going on? He, of course, shows up down there with Clark, armed. I don't know what the hell's in there, but it's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. Bennings, go get Childs. Mac then calls for Childs to bring the flamethrower, because everybody's down there now in this little hallway by the kennel. And the group then sees the thing, and it's mutated into this doggish creature. And this is like it's birthed out of the original dog. And this one, before it gets big and crazy, was done by Stan Winston. Nice. It's really good. And Rob Bottin worked himself to death on this movie for over a year. I don't know if there were scheduling issues, but he really should have asked Stan to help more because it would have been less taxing on him because the the makeup works. Like, I buy that that's part of one of the forms of the thing. Yeah. They assimilate well. (laughs) (laughs) So the thing then sprouts arms out of its butt and tries to pull itself up through the ceiling. But Childs gets there just in time to torch it with the flamethrower. So Blair goes to work on an autopsy on this one. (laughs) (laughs) And he tells the guys his findings. You see, what we're talking about here is an organism that imitates other life forms, and it imitates them perfectly. When this thing attacked our dogs, it tried to digest them, absorb them, and in the process, shape its own cells to imitate them. So we then see Blair taking a blood sample from one of the surviving dogs while questioning Clark about how much time he spent with the new dog. The group then decides to go through the Norwegian research and videos because they need to know what the fuck's going on, and that's the only thing they've got. And... On the videos, they see the Norwegian team blasting something out of the ice. Vance is reading over the notes at the same time, and he's like, holy shit, this looks like it's four miles north of their camp or wherever. So then uh, Mac, Vance, and Doc 
pretty sure it's Doc. You don't ever really see his face. Fucking, it's Antarctica. People got their faces covered up, but I know it's <laughs> Mac Advance. I'm pretty sure Doc is the third guy that goes with them to fly to this site that they just saw in the video. And they find a giant fucking saucer down in the ice. Now, this was done with matte paintings, and it was done by Albert Whitlock. And he was old school studio matte painter and uh, effects artist going all the way back to the birds. He primarily worked with Universal and Disney. There's some really cool shit that he did that there, there's a certain charm to matte paintings that I just like better than yeah. green screen backgrounds, even when they don't age well, which this there's a shot over their shoulders that doesn't age well. But even the shot down below when they when they're coming down and they walk over to the hatch, the hatch is the only thing real in that shot. Every, okay. Yeah. The, the cliff in the background and the hatch in the foreground are real. But the rest of the spaceship down there, even in that shot, when they're coming down the cliff is all a painting. That part. Nice. Fucking holds up. Anyways, they also find where the block of ice from the camp was cut from a few hundred feet away from the ship. Okay. So that's kind of looking like something came out of the hatch and was walking through the snow and froze. Interesting. Fucking aliens, man. (laughs) Game over, man. (laughs) So they head back to their camp and they tell the others what they found. And Childs is like. This is some voodoo bullshit. <laughs> He's like, turn around asking him. He was like, you believe this voodoo bullshit? <laughs> and when he goes to Palmer, Palmer's like, man, this is like, Palmer's the stoner, by the way. And Palmer's like, man, this is straight out of Chariots of the Gods. Now, if anybody doesn't know what that book is, that's a book from the 70s. I didn't have to look any of this shit up because I know this shit. If you've ever watched Ancient Aliens, the whole idea of the Anunnaki and like the old school flying space, all this is because of this guy's books, which was mistranslations of Sumerian text. Anyways, that's what Palmer is referring to when he says chariots of the gods. So what you're trying to tell me is aliens. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so with nobody really taking these guys seriously about what they found, Gary, who's in charge, is doing his best to try to understand. He's like, you're telling me this thing's thousands of years old, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. What the fuck do we do? So we cut to Blair running a simulation on their Asteroids arcade machine. No, wait, it <laughs> is his computer. <laughs> But it sure as shit looks like asteroids and they have an asteroids machine in the rec room. So I had to do that. And, uh, he's seeing the cells get, get assimilated. And the computer says that there's more than a 75% chance that one or more of the crew is already infected. And that if this thing made it to a populated area, it could take over the entire planet in as little as 27,000 hours. I meant to turn that into years, but that's probably pretty fucking fast. (laughs) So Fuchs who's really hard not to call fucks (laughs) (laughs) then takes Mac outside to tell him that Blair's locked himself up because when, when Blair finishes doing the simulation, the last thing we see is Blair open his desk drawer and pick up a gun. And then we fade to black and Fuchs has also stolen Blair's notebook. And in his notebook, it said that Blair found cellular activity in the dead remains that were currently seen being put in storage by windows and George. So, Fuchs knows, Mac knows, this thing isn't really dead, according to Blair, the smartest guy they've got there. Meanwhile, Blair's going a little nanners. <laughs> but Windows, because he's in there with George loading in the dead bodies, he interrupts the conversation of Fuchs and Mac talking outside because he just saw George turn into a George thing. <laughs> so apparently George has already been exposed somehow. And uh, they run inside and the George thing escapes through a window, but they go outside, they surround it and they torch it. 
And they then gather the rest of the corpses that they have collected so far. You know, you got the Norwegian guy, George, the the society cuddle puddle. Uh, they burn <laughs> up all of it because that's their ba- that's the only thing they know so far. That's obviously what happened at the Norwegian camp. They were trying to burn shit. Let's just burn it. Kill it with fire. There's a reason people say that shit. <laughs> was George the one that like hadn't finished like building itself yet and it still had the monster hand? Yes. It does okay, like, okay. the, the uh, fucking weird scream thing. Like I said, I'm terrible with their names. I remember them by C. <laughs> <laughs> so then very quickly after this torching scene, Mac notices Blair, we're going to find out, sabotaging one of the choppers. All he sees is Blair running back inside from one of the choppers. But when he goes to investigate, the chopper's fucking wrecked. There's so much jumping around through all these guys. But the, as the body count goes up, it's easier to keep up with who's doing what. <laughs> <laughs> this movie doesn't disappoint on that. <laughs> So Mac then goes inside to figure out what the fuck Blair's doing. And by now Blair has gone full blown bonkers and he is smashing the shit out of all the radio equipment. He's like, nobody's leaving. And it's not like Blair's a bad dude. Blair's like, I've seen what's going to happen. I'm trying to save the world. That's what you could think at this point. Yeah. Um, So they manage to subdue Blair and they lock him up in the shed out, out away from the camp, like cabin fever or like cabin fever does (laughs) because of the thing. (laughs) Which is what I think you said when we were doing Cabin Fever. And I'm like, uh-huh, because I hadn't seen the thing at that point. <laughs> Probably. Before Mac walks out, Blair tells him, he's like, keep an eye on Clark. Like, seriously, watch Clark. So back inside, paranoia is starting to set in. And that's the thing about this movie that I don't think anybody really noticed when it came out is the story of all these guys. And we're going to go stereotypical here for a second. Cause there's no women in the movie. There was at one point right. going to be a woman in the movie and then she was pregnant. So she couldn't be in the movie or something like that. But the idea of all these tough, isolated guys fucking falling apart in this situation. Yeah. And we're fixing to see how that unfolds. And I think that's a very important dynamic in the movie of the paranoia, the isolation of all these headstrong guys that are supposed to just be down there digging in the fucking snow and playing asteroids. <laughs> I mean, paranoia is definitely the the main part of this film. Yes. So Doc says that he's been thinking about a blood serum test when he's talking to Mac about, you know, what can we do to see who may or may not have this thing based on the evidence we've seen? And uh, he goes in to get their blood reserves, which makes total sense because you're fucking isolated. You better have some fucking extra blood for me in a situation like this. Right. But the blood reserves have been destroyed. Wait a minute. Do you mean like literally a situation like this? Or do you mean in case somebody needs a transfusion or they've bled out a little bit? That The bled out part. In case I had a horrible billiards incident and needed some blood. Because <laughs> that's as bad as I want things to go in. <laughs> some of those blisters movie. you could get from asteroids, man, was yes, pretty bad. That's true. Yeah. You got to do the pencil with the rubber band, but that was for track and field. But anyways. um <laughs> centipede was what always fucked me up because i'd accidentally pinch my skin yes in between the ball and the thing and i'd get a blood blister but you're like on a roll so you just got to keep going you know exactly anyways paul discovery of the destroyed blood reserves they flush out that gary and doc are the only ones that have access to it gary holds on to the key doc checks it out and returns it right away so the whole group kind of singles out gary yeah so meanwhile windows kind of freaks out and leaves the group and goes down the hall and busts out some class and pulls out a shotgun. <laughs> the group's like, where's windows? And they go down there and they find him. And Mac talks him down and Gary, who's the commander is like, I can't do this. This is y'all probably right. feel more comfortable with somebody else in charge. I can't handle this anymore. Cause he's had to pull a gun on windows. Like this is this, there's, this isn't a military group. It's a right. fucking research center. You know, you got to think these are just, you know, 
like a, a mix of, uh, of, of like oil drilling scientists <laughs> type. <people>. Yeah. <laughs> and then like Max, a helicopter pilot. And then is windows, the other one, two of them are helicopter pilots. Max, definitely one of them, obviously. But. Yeah. Windows is the radio operator. Oh, when is the radio operator? Okay. So one of the other guys is also a helicopter yes. pilot. That's why they had two choppers. Yeah. Yes. I think it's Palmer, but I, I don't know. Yeah I, yeah. I think it's Palmer. You're right. And that's important because that just lets you know why some of these scenes could go down the way they did because they'd have a backup pilot. Yes. Right? <laughs> exactly. That will all be out the window soon enough. though. <laughs> yeah. So Gary first gives up command to Vance and Vance is like, I, I'm sorry guys, but I don't think I could do this. And Max like, I'll, I'll do it. And he takes the, takes the pistol away from Gary. Mac is officially in control and he should be because he's the only one who's really nutted up during all this. So later on that night, Fuchs chases a shadow out into the snow. Like literally he sees a shadow and he goes out to chase it, but all he finds is Mac's torn up shirt. Now we've seen Nalls, the cook come in and bitch about how he found Dirty draws in his kitchen, which is a torn up shirt. And uh, we don't really know how that dynamic plays in, but it's going to come up later. And what we're fixing to see ends up being more important than we think. Because all Fuchs finds out in the snow is Mac's torn up shirt. It's got his fucking name on it. So we then see Mac, Nulls, and Windows go to check on Blair out in his little shed. And if you pay attention, no one says anything about it, but he's now made a noose in the fucking shed <laughs> yes. that's hanging next to him. Like he's ready to just end it. If he has to, he's just sitting there eating his beans casually with a fucking <laughs> noose hanging in the wind. Yes. And, uh, McCready won't let him out, but he's trying to convince them that he's definitely safe to come back in. I'm getting better. No, you're not. You'll be stone dead in a moment. So they then find burn up Fuchs. Like what the fuck happened to him? We j literally just saw him looking at McCready's torn up jacket, but now he's a fucking crispy critter in the snow. Yep. And just as they see that, they see that Mac's light is on. Cause see Mac doesn't stay in a bunk in the main building. He stays up on this like fucking watchtower thing, I guess. Cause he's a pilot. He likes to be up off the ground. Maybe is there a, is there a clinical fear of being on the ground? And maybe he has that. <laughs> I think he just likes to be alone. I think he's a loner. This is what you're supposed to get out of that. There is that. Cause they originally wanted to lock doc up, but he's like, he's not going to my fucking cabin. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So meanwhile, the others inside, tired of waiting, they begin to barricade all the doors and windows of the main building. While this is going on, Nulls comes back all by himself, and he says that he cut the guideline abandoning Mac in the snowstorm because he found Mac's burn-up hidden shirt in his room. So the whole shirt thing like changes hands really quick here, and we yeah. don't know who did it. And the snowstorm was coming in at the same time. So now we've got Fuchs burn-up, we've got Mac out in the snow and we've got windows still out there somewhere. So then of course the handle starts turning on the door while the, while they're having this conversation. Cause they start the whole thing is like, you think he's one of them? I don't think he is. He has to be, well, what do you want to do? Well, maybe we should kill him. Maybe we shouldn't. How do we know what, like even in this little group <laughs> trying to argue, even with evidence, is it McCready or not? So the door starts to fucking turn and they're like, it must be him. Get ready to shoot him or flamethrower him or whatever they're going to do. But then they hear a window break in the storage room. They open the door of the storage room. And there's a frozen ass Mac standing there with fucking dynamite in one hand and a lit flare in the other <laughs> hand. <laughs> this makes him very persuasive. Even though there is a quick scuffle, Mac is still controlling the situation. So there is a quick scuffle and in advance collapses and he's presumably dead. And we also saw him grab his chest just a few minutes earlier while they were barricading everything up. So into the uh, little exam operating room they've got here. <laughs> Doc tries to resuscitate Vance as uh, 
There's a little bit more arguing still going on. And while the arguing's going on, we see Clark palm a scalpel. So uh, the most badass scene of this flick ensues from here. So Doc goes to hit Vance with the defibrillator and his chest just blows open and his hands go in and the broken ribs are now used as teeth to fucking <laughs> bite Doc's hands off. And they actually used a paraplegic and made the jello arms so they could literally bite something off. And uh, so you've okay. got to stand in for Doc in that wide shot as he falls over screaming, looking at his nubs. So then the Vance thing burst out of the cavity, this gaping hole in the chest. But Mac is now upgraded from a flare to a flamethrower as he's been yep. walking around holding this bundle of dynamite. <laughs> so he's like, oh, okay. And he torches it. And it looks so cool. And this is the infamous thing that's that's up to the ceiling and has the, the little Vance head hanging off the side of yeah. it up there. But then Vance's real head is still down there on his body. It's, it's fucking really cool. While it's burning up, the head down on the body starts to scream and pull itself away by the neck and the yep. neck rips open and there's all these these spindly things that look really cool that they're breaking and these little pustule things bust open and then the head falls off the side and hits the floor and it spits one of them tentacle things we saw come out of the dog <laughs> onto like a table leg and starts pulling itself across the room nobody's seeing this shit it's, it's on the other side of the table it sprouts these crab spider leg things and like new eyeballs poke up on these like things out of the other side of its head and the mouth is screaming and upside down and it goes scurrying out of the room and then finally Palmer <laughs> notices it you gotta be fucking kidding. Mac then torches it too. Now I have to tell the story. So one, the guy who played Vance, they put him in makeup for 10 hours to do this scene. Jeez. They go to do the chest ripping open shot and something goes wrong. I don't remember what it was the first time and they have to reset all this shit. So they reset that, they get that part done and then they're going to shoot the head ripping off part. And what Robotine said they did is they just took a whole mess of chemicals that would melt plastic when applied. And that's what they used inside for the neck ripping thing. And what he didn't tell anybody was they used stuff that melts plastic. So, you know, like paint thinner, acetone, all this flammable stuff that gives off a lot of vapors. Okay. And they're set to shoot that part. And Carpenter goes, whoa, 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 whoa. He just burned the shit out of the rest of it. I want a fire bar under the camera for this shot. And uh, so they set up the fucking fire bar and burn out the whole fucking room when they light it. And Jeez. they're like, what the fuck did you do, Rob? And Rob's like, we got to set up again. <laughs> so there was a big <laughs> fire on set during filming this because of the shit they used for that shot, but they did get the shot. It's all that matters. Anyways, I just think that's a fun story. And, uh, these are the shit that they won't let you get away with anymore. And that's both good and bad because these practical effects fucking hold up. They're so good. Yep. So we're now going to move on to the actual blood test and the third act of the film. Love the blood test scene because it builds dread better than so many other movies. And that's why Robert Rodriguez reused this for the faculty, right? Yep. Still better in this. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> so Mac tells Palmer and Windows to tie everyone else down. And Charles is like, no, fuck that. You're going to have to kill me. And Mac's yeah. like, okay. And he pulls out his fucking pistol, puts it right in his face and cocks it. But then Clark lunges at him with the scalpel that we saw in Palm earlier. Mac spins right the fuck around on him, shoots him in the forehead, killing him dead. Yep. Then Mac starts going through the blood samples and they've got blood samples from everybody. And he's, he's heating up a piece of wire and they're doing all this based on Blair's notes. There's cellular activity after death. This whole thing's one conscious organism. If we hurt the blood, it's gonna have to react in some way. It's like all these Petri dishes with everybody's names on them. 
<laughs> and it's a big, dramatic, drawn-out thing of heating up the wire, sticking it in the blood. But you don't have to hear me say that seven times. Windows, nothing. Mac, nothing. Linux, awesome. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking great. <laughs> oh, moving on. Doc, nothing. Clark, nothing. And of course, Charles looks at Mac and he's like, you fucking murdered him. <laughs> <laughs> Palmer, the blood burst of fucking life in this fucking coming out of Freddy Krueger looking thing that comes up out of the Petri disc. Do you know how they did that? Because I always want to know how they did that shot. Well, it's not his hand in the shot. It's not a uh, Kurt Russell's hand. It's actually a, a fake hand. And the whole rig is just hidden by the hand and was just set up under the dish. And he stuck the wire in nothing. And then they just shot the whole thing up through the Petri dish. Okay. Okay. It just looked cool as fuck. It does. I did. And I, I always bought the fake hand. I always thought Kurt Russell was actually holding it when that shit came out of it. Didn't know it was, it was all a prop until they said it in the commentary. I mean, really, that's how I would think a symbiote like Venom or Carnage or something from Marvel Comics would move. Yeah. But, you know, so we got shitty CGI. But you know what I mean. <laughs> nope. We got Rob Bottin up for 72 hours straight. <laughs> Sculpting <Jesus>. away. <laughs> so, of course, Palmer is the one who mutates. It's his blood. And he's tied down to a couch next to Gary and Childs. <laughs> They're not thrilled about this, but luckily Palmer thing breaks through the ropes and he like flies up onto the ceiling and then falls back down. And, uh, Max like yelling at windows, like burn it, burn it. And it turns around. And this is so evil deadish. It turns around to fucking windows and it's all mutated out and its own head splits open with its own gnashing teeth inside of it. That yeah. bites windows head and then picks him up off the ground by his hand. And he's fucking flailing and fucking flying around and blood's going everywhere. And everybody's freaking out, especially Childs and Gary who are tied to the fucking couch right next to all this yeah. carnage. Eventually Palmer thing throws windows body off into the corner. And, uh, <laughs> Mac torches it and it just runs straight through the fucking wall out into the snow on fire. Yeah. And Mac then lights a stick of dynamite and fucking throws it and blows up Palmer thing into a million pieces. Now go back and watch this wide shot of the explosion. I read conflicting things about this and watched interviews with conflicting things about this, but either Kurt Russell really lit and threw a stick of dynamite. Possibly I've heard it say both ways, but Damn. regardless, he was standing too fucking close to an explosion when it happened, regardless of how it happened, because the concussion from that is fucking insane. And he's like 15 feet away. Like you can, Jeez. you can see the camera shake, which I don't know what the lensing was on it, but it looks to be a good 30, 40 feet away. And he's just standing right there. It's fucking insane. But Palmer's taken care of. So Matt comes back in, tortures the fuck out of what's left of windows. <laughs> and it's a hard cut right back to. Let's continue <laughs> back to the fucking <laughs> right. Cause you know who the fuck else is infected. Yes. So next Petri dish. Nalls, nothing. Childs, nothing. Gary alone on the couch at this point. Cause now he's <laughs> the only one side of the couch. Nothing. I know you gentlemen have been through a lot. And when you find the time, I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch. That line is so good. That's exactly what a commanding guy tied to this fucking <laughs> couch would say, in my opinion. Like just with honor the whole time going through the whole shebang because he gets it and he understands it. But now he's done. 
Yes. Like, I really had fun, but uh, uh, sun's going down. I got to go. How shocked were you that Clark was not infected? Oh, I even, okay. So on first watch at this part of the film, I think that their theory is bunk and that it's still Clark, even though he's dead. <laughs> really? <laughs> on first watch. Yes. I was, I bought it hook, line and sinker, man. Cause I think there was something weird earlier with like the, the, when dude went and got the gun and stuff like Clark has acted weird a couple of times and he was so close to the dog and I guess it just never infected him. Yep. And that's the thing he's, he's set up as a red herring and it's perfect. And then they turn around and set up Gary as the red herring and even have the exchange where Mac's like, that's why we're saving you for last. <laughs> like, Right. And then he was running around putting Mac shirts everywhere to turn everybody against Mac. But the thing didn't expect Mac to come in with fire and a uh, bunch of dynamite. Yeah. I'm unsure of who moves the shirt based on who's outside at that time. And I'm really unsure of what burn up Fuchs. I mean, he's holding a flare when he's out there, but anyway, we'll, we'll get to that at the end. So Mac Nalls and Gary go out to get Blair out of the shed. Blair's gone. (laughs) (laughs) And they discover these loose floorboards. And uh, not only is Blair gone, he's tunneled under the shed and he's been Mm -hmm. quietly building a hovercraft. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Under the fucking snow. So he wasn't just sabotaging the choppers. He was building his own shit. So how long has Blair been not Blair? Do you think? And that's the thing. Okay. I think. The noose in the shed is the dead giveaway. Oh, exactly. So I think Blair knew. I think Blair got exposed and was just waiting to find out when he was going to turn. And I think that's the real reason he sabotages the chopper and destroys the radio equipment. He already knew at that point. And like he was hoping kind of like the whole zombie thing. Like I got one bullet left and I'm, I've been bit. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to kill myself before I turn. I think that's why he had the noose. All speculation because it's fun. <laughs> you could listen to John Carpenter and Kurt Russell on the commentary where they're like, maybe this, maybe that, maybe this, who knows? Like they won't fucking say it <laughs> anyways. So Knowles looks outside from the shed and spots someone running outside. And then all of a sudden, all the power to the camp shuts off. Max like, oh shit, we're all going to freeze real quick if we don't get the generator <laughs> running. <laughs> Because it's like 130 below. And Mac also says that the thing freezing in the ice until the rescue team comes is its best chance of survival. Because they, oh, what's this discovery? Do, 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 do. Because, you know, we're people. We're dumb. Right. So he says it's time for them to heat things up. And, of course, Mac's, you know, just carrying around dynamite. It's what he does now for the rest of the movie. And first he blows up the hovercraft, which blows up the shed. And it's a big bada boom. And the trio starts to burn down and blow up the rest of the camp. Once they've got upstairs done, they head down into the generator room only to discover that the generator's gone. And it's fucking hilarious because Mac's yelling at Gary. He's like, how's the generator? And he's like, Mac, it's gone. He's like, do you think you could fix it? And he's like, no, it's gone. Yes. <laughs> oh, it's just so good. So they split up with explosives and a fuse line and they're setting all these charges for down there. And this is where the generator was. This is where all their fuel storage is. This is going to fucking level whatever's left. So they're split up and Gary rounds this corner and oh, there's Blair and Blair like sticks his hand inside Gary's face while covering his mouth. (laughs) So nobody can hear him yell. And of course, assimilates him now. So we're definitely confirming that Blair is a Blair thing. Then we cut back over to Knowles, who just kind of wanders off into the darkness. (laughs) It's not really explained. (laughs) I don't know if we're supposed to think he thought he heard something and he wanders off, but whatever, he's gone. Well, they were separating to blow up different parts, right? Yes. Until they were ready to do the the big bada boom at the end, right? Yes, the Wiley Coyote fucking push down thingy. Yes. 
So Mac's all alone now and he knows he's fucked. So the first thing he does is light a stick of dynamite. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. There's nothing there. And he's like, <laughs> I just like that. He already accepted the fact that they all have to die anyways. Yes. Right. He's like, yes. fuck it. Totally. It's going with me. So the thing charges through the floor at him all of a sudden, straight up trimmer style hits Mac. Mac goes flying. The lit dynamite goes flying. And the thing busts a hole through the floor and these not very good looking stop motion tentacles grab the detonator, <laughs> pull it down into the hole. And if I remember correctly, that stop motion right there is the only stop motion that made it into the actual film. Nice. Because what happens next, this massive fucking thing monster bursts through the floor and you got Blair's head over here and somebody else's head over there and a fucking dog starting to eat its way out of the stomach. Like this is everything <laughs> we've seen it be so far all in one giant monster. And the crew called it the Blair monster for from here on out. So that may have come from John. It may have come from Rob. I don't know. But there was a stop motion shot of all of this with the bursting through the floor and the dog actually finishing coming out of the monster and onto the floor. They spent weeks and weeks building the miniature set and all this shit. And when John Carpenter saw it, he said, that looks like shit. It's not staying in my movie. Okay. And it kind of sucks. But it, when you watch it in the collectors, it's bad. I mean, it's like 12, not even 12 seconds, like uh, X amount of frames, not even amount of time of the dog coming out, but it kills the mood. Really? Okay. Yeah. The puppets and the sculpting, everything looks so good. And when it's painted and covered in 4 million gallons of KY, it just pops. Anyways. <laughs> So Matt grabs his still lit stick of dynamite in the face of this horrendous Blair monster, and he delivers his parting words to the beast. Yeah, fuck you too! And he throws his stick of dynamite and goes running out the fucking hole, and the remainder of the camp explodes. He walks away into some other rubble from earlier, and he collapses and whips out his bottle of trusty JB, which he's still been drinking throughout the whole fucking movie, by the way. Yeah. Why in the fuck not? And then Childs pops up. Mac's like, where the fuck you been? He's like, I got lost in the snow looking for Blair. Charles is like, did you kill it? Mac's like, I blew it up. He's <laughs> like, well, what do we do now? He's like, I think we just rest for a little while. <laughs> yeah. And they pass the bottle back and forth. And it's so good because you can tell they both don't trust the other one. And they both know that no matter what, they're fucked. Let's just sit here and drink till we're numb and die. And that's where we get left. And we go to credits. Which kind of bothers me because they had already accepted the fact earlier that they all needed to die to make sure the thing didn't get out and they didn't want it to freeze out in Antarctica. Yeah. So why didn't they just fucking blow each other up? I don't know. If I was in that situation, I would rather drink and feel as little as possible as I fucking Right, right. Today. No, no. I get you on like numbing out the pain and just going out that way. But like they had already earlier established and accepted the fact that they needed to make sure it didn't get out of there or freeze alive in the ice or anything. Yeah. Well, I mean, this whole ending happened so damn fast that you got to kill the monster first. Somebody's got to kill the monster while somebody's alive. But I get what you're saying. They could have went Christine and just locked everybody in a room and fucking carbon monoxide themselves. And yeah. And know they save the save the planet well i just meant down to these two they could have done something like that because if childs is infected he's spitting shit in the bottle right now to yes. get mac when he drinks the bottle right and see that's the thing okay so carpenter wouldn't flat out say it either in the commentary or in any interviews that i ran across and that's what bothered me was they passed the bottle back and forth because they talk about earlier if one cell could actually change you everyone should prepare their own meals actually we should just right. eat out of cans so I think that right there is letting us know that they're not infected. That's the only reason that they're sharing the bottle. 
and I see where people say the opposite. Like, oh, no, no, no he's sharing the bottle because he's trying to ass- – he's the fucking thing. He doesn't have to use a fucking bottle right. to covertly do it. They're the only two left. Well, I yeah, I mean, I, I see that. I don't think Max infected because we've seen the movie through his eyes, right? Yes. So he's been fine the whole time. It's Childs that's debatable, and Childs could just play it cool because Max still has – dynamite and shit I think, at this point, you know what i mean <laughs> yeah so you could just you know drink the booze and infect them that way you just don't know it was left to be ambiguous like on purpose and yes i don't always like those endings but it's, it's a cool ending for this flick well looking at the alternative they shot an alternate ending it's never even been screened according to the okay. commentary now the commentary i'm listening to is from the laser disc so it's fucking old but they said they shot mac surviving and leaving on a helicopter and like being in a hospital and shit which you could have just shut it down there too. And, oh, is Mac infected? Did he get away? I think it's much more fun to leave it with the last two guys because now it's, did someone get infected and get away? Does the thing take over another body and freeze in the snow for another 10,000 years? It's wide open. And I totally buy the two dudes thinking they're not infected and they're just going to say, fuck it. We got nothing left else to do but die. Yeah. It's a great movie, and you can see where it's influenced scenes in other movies, like we said before. And something fun to mention is that uh, the video game Among Us is based off the thing. They've said that before. I don't know if you've played that game before, but it's a blast. But you have the same sense of like dread and not trusting each other, and you don't have the blood sample test. I've just watched Grand Pooh Bear play it. Oh, okay. But you're at least familiar with it, though, yeah. right? Like you can see how it's the thing. Oh, yeah, totally. And that's, you know, it's isolation horror. It's- yeah. It's real world horror with the paranoia dynamic of who is it? What is it? And you're, you can't get away. Right. I can't believe I missed it for so many years. I can't believe I never played it for you. I feel like a terrible cousin at this point. (laughs) Now I didn't write it, but I don't think that's a big of a deal with John Carpenter, but it definitely feels like one of his flicks and it feels it's a little bit more action dude guy movie. And it makes me much more excited to watch Escape from New York because I haven't seen yeah. that shit since I was like 12. Yeah. And if you think you started with Assault from Precinct 13, which was a uh, exploitation flick, but it's still kind of an action flick. Like he he has that in him. They lives a bit of an action flick, right? Big Trouble in Little China is definitely an action flick. Like that's one of his things. He just can do movies with no action and them be awesome as well, right? Yep. And I'm really glad that he didn't get sucked into doing Westerns. <laughs> yeah. And this is cool. Cause like, I mean, he's always said this is what his favorite movie. Well, the original was one of his favorite movies. Right. And this is like a dream yeah. project. He got to do it. You can tell he loved the fucking movie because in Halloween, that's the movie the kids are watching is the original. The oh thing. yeah. He showed in one of his first big movies that he was a huge, the thing fan and wanted to do it. Right. So he got to live his dream, which not everybody gets to do. I love the movie, but it's not like one of my favorite Carpenter flicks, but it's one of my favorite practical effects movies, right? Like, like this movie, I always remember the practical effects and the paranoia more than I remember anything else. Yeah. But anyways, that's it for the first part of our John Carpenter series. So you guys are going to have to tune in on the next episode where we cover more Carpenter flicks. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass and I'm all out of bubblegum. As usual, guys, thanks for downloading the show and spreading the word. Please do not forget to rate and review us online. And please, please send us comments, questions, and suggestions to our email, sbispodcast at gmail.com. We would also love it if you could follow our Twitter and Instagram, both at sbispodcast. This might motivate us to use them more. See you guys on the next one. Thanks for listening.
I enjoy scaring people a lot. I enjoy suspense and action and thrills. And I enjoy comedy. I guess mainly the, the genres of films. 